Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The Knights Templar were holy soldiers who wore uniforms emblazoned with a now famous red cross, symbolizing both the blood Christ had shed for mankind and also the blood of mankind that they were more than ready to spill in the Lord's service. And it's going to take two full shows to tell their incredible tale. Welcome to part one. Although the Templars were only one amongst a host of religious orders that sprang up in medieval Europe and in the Holy Land between the 11th and 14th centuries, they became by far the best known the most successful, and the most controversial. Their order was a product of the Crusades, wars instigated by the medieval church, which took aim primarily, although not exclusively, at the Islamic rulers of Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor, Egypt, Northwest Africa, Southern Spain. The word Templars, shorthand for the poor knighthood of the temple, or less frequently, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and the temple of Jerusalem, advertised their origins at the Temple Mount in Christianity's holiest city. They were legends in their own lifetimes, featured in popular stories, artwork, ballads. The Templars were founded in 1119 CE on the principles of chastity, obedience, and poverty, but they soon ironically became immensely wealthy uh, and obedient to almost no one but themselves and the Pope. They counted amongst their friends and financial supporters kings, princes, queens, countesses, patriarchs, and popes. The Templars financed wars, built castles, ran cities, Ran a whole, uh, pretty much nation at one point for, for a brief time. Raised armies and so much more. From meager beginnings, it became as mighty an outfit as existed during the later Middle Ages. They were more powerful, they were wealthier, and they were better armed than some entire medieval kingdoms. And really, they were, for many years, kind of a kingdom unto themselves. And today, more than 700 years after their demise, the Templars remain an object of fascination, uh, imitation, obsession, Templars have been presented variously as heroes, martyrs, thugs, bullies, victims, criminals, perverts, heretics, depraved, subversives, guardians of the Holy Grail, protectors of Christ's secret bloodline, time-traveling agents of global conspiracy. And we do our best to tell their legendary, awe-inspiring tale today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time 
Happy Monday, time suckers. Kickstarting your work week with some new knowledge. Fuck yeah. Good for you, you beautiful bastards. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, the prophet of Nimrod, the fourth leg of Bojangles, and you, for at least the next 90 plus minutes, you know, I hope, are a member of the cult of the curious. And uh, you're listening to Time Suck. And Time Suck is brought to you today by the Wild Card Podcast, recently selected as one of the 10 best new shows by Podcast Hunter. Wild Card is an interesting, hilarious, and occasionally uncomfortable look, I love it, uh, at the world around us. Host John and Connor ask the questions you need answered. What is it like to get shot at in combat? Is your waiter spitting in your food? I've worried about that several times. What are the strangest objects paramedics are finding in people's butts? I've also looked into that quite often. Uh, they interview guests like uh, United States Marine Corps Captain Phil Downs, Comedy Central Workaholics creator, oh, very cool, Ta- Dominic Russo, high-profile defense attorney Brandon Cohen, man, variety. They do a little bit of everything, just like we time suckers enjoy. So give it a listen. Check out the Wild Card Podcast. Download Wild Card today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you like to listen to podcasts. And speaking of places where you where you get to listen to podcasts, thanks for pushing this show to over 4,000 ratings on iTunes. Man, ratings and reviews help spread the sex so much. I know I always hammer iTunes. I know there's other places, and I hope you leave ratings everywhere. It just uh, That's just based on analytics of most people discover new podcasts uh, via iTunes. Uh, that's the only reason I hammer that one. And we just continue to grow, man. Uh, we, we get more new time suckers each month, and, uh, and it's thanks to you guys. Those of you who rate, review, and tell others, you're the reason the show grows. Thank you so much. Most of the ratings uh, are still fantastic and funny. I try not to check them too often because it can make me crazy when people are angry. But, uh, but I'm trying to laugh at it. Uh, thanks for keeping the show at five stars. Uh, some of the one-star reviews do crack me up, uh, like Sam Popo's review. Sam Popo, <laughs> I just thought this was really funny. Sam Popo does not care for me one bit. Uh, the subject of his review is horrible host. And, <laughs> and he comments, horrible, this is a quote, horribly awful. I like the content and the ideas he discusses, but he has horrible jokes and is very bad at giving podcasts. Maybe a new host? That's the part that cracked me up. Maybe a new host? Like, that's the, that's the best. The show is, t- <laughs> the show is Time Suck with Dan Cummins, you dumb bastard, Sam. I, I love that I am the show, but you still want to replace me. Like, you like what I'm doing, but just not me. Such a strange critique. That's like, hey, hey, John Mayer, listen up, buddy. I like your songs. The words, good. The melodies, pretty good. Guitar solos, I enjoy them, but I don't like you. You are bad at giving musics. Just hear me out. Could you maybe find a new John Mayer? <laughs> like, <laughs> ah, God. Uh, thanks to the Time Suckers who came out to Des Moines. Uh, man, Luke, thanks for saying hello while I worked uh, on this episode at Starbucks. Thanks for making that drive from Kansas City. That was hilarious. We ran into each other there. Uh, thanks to all of you who drove in from Minneapolis, Omaha, elsewhere. Got to see uh, uh, some of the new Danger Brain merch being worn in the crowd already. Love it. I'm wearing some right now. I got a, I got a Lucifina koozie holding my, holding, my, uh, holding my beer last night after the barbecuing. It's holding uh, some coconut water right now because it's early. And yeah. Uh, the magnets, man, I had no idea the koozies and magnets would be so popular. Uh, the tank top, so it is fun to have a, now I get it. Now I get why you guys were asking for a time suck tank top. Yeah, man, it is nice to wear one in the summer. And uh, yeah, I had to start using this stuff. I was starting to feel like I was uh, being left out of my own club, not not using the new merch, but I got it now. Now I got to get, get to the gym. I got to pump up the guns for the, for the summer tank top. 
because all this typing and sitting and not going to the gym the past year, I am the weakest uh, I've ever been as an adult. I am not in not in good physical condition. No bueno. Uh, more tour dates coming up this summer. Orlando, La Jolla, Dayton next month, Tampa, Palm Beach, Denver, Chicago in August. So many more 2018 Flat Earth tour dates. Oh, my God. I ran into a Flat Earther at the club. I'll say this, and we'll get right into it. Uh, Portland, Denver, Tacoma. More coming up, dancummins.tv. And uh, before I get into tonight's Templar, just real quick, I was in Des Moines. I had my Flat Earth Tour t-shirts, and this guy, I didn't realize he was staff at first. He taps one of the shirts as I'm kind of setting up while my, my buddy Pat House is on stage, just kind of getting the table ready. And he taps it, and he goes, ah, don't agree. Don't agree. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, you, uh, you, you believe the Earth is flat? And he was like, yeah. You know? You know he, and then he really immediately goes, but you know, whatever. I heard your stuff. You know, I can handle it. I'm a big boy. And then I realize he is a staff and I'm following him now down the service hallway to get back to the green room. And he's just kind of blabbing like, you know, whatever, man. Everybody gets to, you know, have their own opinions. I, uh, I have my thoughts on it. And then I'm, I shit you not, he goes and, and he's probably about 30 years old, I would say, and then gathers some dishes and he, and he starts washing dishes. And I know this might make me sound like a dick, but I did think, of course, you're the dishwasher. Like odds are, <laughs> odds are you're not going to be the general manager. If you're like, nah, man, disagree about your flat earth. And that's not a knock. It really isn't. I know people, you know, we go through things in life or maybe we're, you know, don't care about work and you can be a dishwasher. I met plenty of dishwashers who were very intelligent over my years at clubs. I, I get it. But I was like, if I had to place money on which position the flat earth would have, that would be it. All right. I, I just had to get that out there. Okay, suckheads. Let's get into Knights Templar. The Knights Templar wouldn't have existed uh, had it not been for the Crusades. So we got to establish a little context for their lives by first explaining what the Crusades were. Uh, beginning in the 11th century, Christians in Jerusalem, they thought it would be fun to make Muslims cakes, cookies, uh, biscuits, and they baked these tasty gifts in the Holy Land. And uh, with the message that we're all God's people and we should all get along with one another, and they invited the, uh, everyone to share in the, in the fun treats. Uh, yeah, right. No, Christians in Jerusalem— they were being increasingly uh, persecuted by the, uh, by the city's Islamic rulers in the 11th century because at the, in the 11th century, there was – Muslims were in control, but uh, there was also, you know, uh, Jews, Christians, and, and, and I'm sure the, uh, the occasional pagan snuck in there. Uh, and, and especially when, when control of the holy city passed from the relatively tolerant Egyptians to the Seljuk Turks in 1071 CE. Late in the century, uh, Byzantine emperor Alexius Comnenus also threatened – uh, by the the Seljuk Turks, appealed to the powers of Western Europe for aid. And for a few decades, the powers of Western Europe were like, yeah, look, uh, I know things are rough for you, but, you know, the Turks are pretty good at killing us. And we don't enjoy dying. And they're not, they're not fucking with us directly now. So here's our plan. We're going to drink some more mead. We're going to have some more rack of lamb. And, you know, we'll just see how things go down the road about the whole helping you business. Uh, if you'll recall way back from the Vlad and Paler uh, suck, living in southeastern Europe was especially horrendous for hundreds of years due to constant battling between Muslim and Christian armies, right? The Muslim armies in the Middle East and Asia Minor and the Christian army kingdoms in the West. And, and both sides, you know, claimed they were fighting for God. But really, it was kind of the same old story. It was rich and powerful people looking for, you know, to expand their wealth and power or protect what, they, what wealth and power they already had. And now, to be fair, many of these rulers and nobles did also take their religion seriously and, and did seem to truly believe they were fighting infidels to spread the glory of God. They thought were, they were filling, fulfilling God's will. And then in 1095, Pope Urban II 
He, he publicly called for a crusade to aid uh, Christians, you know, Eastern Christians, and to recover holy lands for the Christian rulers of Europe. He didn't, he didn't like it. Pope didn't care for people being persecuted. And, of course, he wanted to expand his empire. And, uh, and so it's like, let's just, let's just get him out of there. Let's just kick him out. And the response by Western Europeans was immediate. And the, these peasants, you know, they were, they were ready to go over there and, and fight for their pope. And, and why, why were they, uh, the, you know, people who probably weren't going to get rich off a crusade, suddenly willing to go fight and possibly die? Well, many of them were much more kind of pious than their leaders and, and were truly worried about their salvation. In addition to the spiritual reward of spreading their religion, uh, reclaiming, you know, uh, the Holy Land for the religion, there was also the promise of the far greater reward of guaranteed salvation. This was a big selling point for crusaders, especially the lower ranks. It's like, you want it for sure? Go to heaven? Okay, we'll fight and die for the glory of God's crusade and all your sins are absolved. You are guaranteed eternal life at God's side. That was the sales pitch from, from Rome. You die in the crusades, you go to heaven. Done deal, period. Uh, you know, and, and the rewards didn't stop there. There were uh, some financial incentives for the peasants. Uh, you could get your debt absolved. In some cases, you could acquire a little bit of land for your family, you know, and kind of uh, build your your social rank. Uh, the first groups of crusaders, there were several, were actually undisciplined hordes of French and German peasants who, frankly, were not very good at crusading. Uh, the motto on their battle flags uh, might have might have well said something like, uh, please take it easy on us. We're doing our best. We're very scared and very un- underprepared. Please. We just want to, we're trying to do what we think is right. Uh, but seriously, they weren't, they weren't good at it. One group known as the People's Crusade reached as far as Constantinople and then were absolutely annihilated by the Turks. A lot of death by sword happening. A lot, a lot of not fun times going down. Then the following year, 1096, new, much more organized crusading force featuring 4,000 mounted knights, you know, horseback, 25,000 infantry began to move east, led by Raymond of Toulouse, a city in southern France, Godfrey of Bouillon, also in France, Robert of Flanders, now part of Belgium, and uh, Beaumont of Otranto, located in Italy. These crusaders, uh, they, they led their organized armies of Christian knights east, crossed into Asia Minor in 1097 in pursuit of glory, spiritual insurance, and financial gain. And in June, the crusaders captured the Turkish-held city of Nicaea, then defeated a massive army of Seljuk Turks at Dorlium, uh, located in modern-day western Turkey. From there, they marched on to uh, Antioch, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, located on the uh, Orontes River below Mount Silpius, present-day southeast Turkey near the border with Syria. They're in the Holy Land now, and they began a difficult six-month siege of Antioch during which they repulsed several attacks by Turkish relief armies. Finally, early in the morning of June 3rd, 1098, Bowman persuaded a Turkish trader to open up uh, Antioch's bridge gate, and the knights poured into the city. And then in an orgy of killing, the Christians massacred thousands of enemy soldiers and citizens, and all but the uh, city's inner fortified fortified citadel was taken. Uh, Later in the month, a large Turkish army uh, arrived and attempted to regain the city, but they they too were defeated, and then the Antioch uh, citadel surrendered to the Europeans. Then after resting, reorganizing for six months in a new little headquarters out there in the, you know, in the, in the east, the crusaders set off for their ultimate goal, Jerusalem, the jewel city of the Holy Land, present-day Israel. And uh, after losing a fair share of crusaders taking Antioch, their numbers were, were down to about t- uh, 1,200 cavalry, 12,000 foot soldiers. But they marched on. They're going to bring God's wrath with them. They're ready. June 7th, uh, 1099, the Christian army reaches the Holy City, finding it heavily fortified, and they began building three enormous 50-foot-tall siege towers, these big-ass towers so they could, you know, push them and, and, and I guess, you know, like get over the I, – I couldn't find a, an adequate description of these particular towers, these siege towers. But they also constructed a giant battering ram, uh, catapults. I mean this is, you know, classic medieval siege like you watch a movie. 
You know, by the night of July 13th, the towers were complete. The Christians began fighting their way across Jerusalem's walls. On July 14th, Godfrey's men were able to penetrate the, uh, the defense of the city. Uh, the gate of St. Stephen was opened. I mean, this is like what you'd see in a movie. People pour, like climbing over the walls, pouring over like, these catapulting things. They got these siege towers, which I'm assuming were these kind of uh, medieval towers where they would have them up, you know, near the wall so that people could climb up the tower and climb over, which must have been hard to, to build as you're getting shot at while you're trying to build it. Oh, geez. Uh, and then they get in and they open up the gate from the inside. And then the rest of the knights and the soldiers, they pour in. The city is captured and tens of thousands of its occupants slaughtered in the name of God. Holy shit. That might be the origin of the term holy shit, actually. You know, they were supposedly doing something holy, but shit was got—it's getting crazy. It's some crazy shit. One contemporary eyewitness, quote, said the attackers were wading in blood up to their ankles. Sweet Jesus, that is a lot of blood. Tens of thousands slaughtered. Uh, most, I'm assuming, slaughtered by the sword. What a, what a terribly intimate way of killing someone. Life was so much more violent back then. Uh, the Jewish residents who fought alongside the Muslims to defend Jerusalem retreated, retreated into a synagogue and were burned alive inside it. And then Jesus looked down from heaven and said, yes, yes, this is what I was hoping for. This is why I died on the cross. So you guys can really cut those fuckers down. Good job, team. Good game today. Good game. Uh, no, but it is crazy when you think about like, all the horrible death uh, in the name of God. I wonder, if, I wonder if getting slaughtered in the name of God is a better faith than getting slaughtered in the name of a tyrant. Or worse, getting slaughtered just, you know, just kind of for the fuck of it. I'm, I'm guessing getting slashed to death with a sword hurts just as much when it's being swung in God's name as it does when it's being swung with zero sense of self-righteousness. Ah, well, well, you know who probably hasn't slaughtered, to my knowledge, or burned alive anyone in God's name? One of today's sponsors. Time Suck is brought to you once again by Amerigas. Freedom, fireworks, sparklers, tight Daisy Duke shorts, cowboy boots, chocolate malts. All things that go hand in hand with grilling with Amerigas. It's America. In gaseous form. So get your grill on this summer with Amerigas Propane Exchange and do it on the new free American-made Weber grill you've won thanks to Time Suck. I was, I was, I was messing around with some Weber stuff uh, I got for my grill uh, yesterday. Got a little Weber uh, meat thermometer. Got a little Weber light that attaches to your grill handle so that when it's dark out, there's no reason to stop grilling. You don't have to, you know, even if there's no other light around. Well, when this grill... Win this Weber grill, uh, you know, with the Time Suck uh, code we have going on here. Register to win at mytimesuckgrill.com. You just enter your name. You enter your email address. takes about 10 seconds. That's it. And then you're in the running. The contest runs through the 4th of July. You got a little more time to win this brand new Weber Spirit 2 E210 two-burner propane gas grill, $400 grill value for free. And Weber's, I mean, uh, you know, it's not like I'm the the most experienced grilling dude, but they are solid grills. Like, like check them out. Like, if you're, you know, Lowe's, Home Depot, check those things out. They're they're heavy duty. They're well constructed. No, no shit. Uh, and how do you get your meat paws on some Amerigas right now for the grill you already own? You pick up propane tanks at your local Home Depot, Dollar General store, so many other stores nationwide. If it's a big store, there's a good chance it has Amerigas. So how do you and how do you win that Weber grill again? MyTimesuckGrill.com. Winner will be announced. Friday, July 6th, uh, link in the episode description. Make it, make it real easy. Okay, Jerusalem, it's in Christian hands now. Hooray if you're Christian, if you're Muslim or you're Jew or some random pagan, you are not cheering as much. Uh, the few Muslims that did manage to escape with their lives, uh, they just gave up and left. They were, you know what? They were like, you know what? Okay, you guys want it, uh, fair and square. We're, we're gonna mosey off. Uh, we're gonna find somewhere else to live. Uh, enjoy it. Uh, you know, Allah knows we, 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 we'd love to live there, but it's yours now. And we totally understand. We respect your decision to take it. Uh, you fought well, best of luck. 
uh, you know, we, we wish it, we truly wish you the best. No, no, they were understandably uh, very angry. This was their city. It's one of their favorite cities. It's a, it's a very, you know, important city in Islam as well. News spread fast to Egypt where a large army of Muslims resided. And they immediately marched on the holy city a few weeks later to challenge the Christians' new claim to this land. And they got their asses kicked. This crusade's going very well. It's, it's going very well for the Christians. The Egyptians' defeat by the outnumbered uh, Christians in August ended Muslim resistance to the Europeans for the time being. And, and some Christian states were now carved out of this newly acquired Muslim territory. There was Antioch, Jerusalem, Edessa, a short time later, Tripoli. And these, uh, these new states would expand their reach. Other principalities would be carved out of them. Each new territory would ultimately fall back to Muslim rule, although a few would remain Christian for roughly two centuries. And in the aftermath of this first successful crusade, the Order of the Knights Templar would form, originally out of a need to defend both these newly acquired lands from Muslims who wanted to take them back, and also to defend Christians making pilgrimage, uh, pilgrimages to visit these lands. Uh, I'm sure the early pilgrims expected to encounter a certain degree of danger, you know, from, from brigands and robbers, from vagabonds on their journey. But the hostility of the Muslims who lived in and around these new crusader states was, a, was another danger they, they weren't able to really prepare for in small groups. You know, the losses that the, the Muslims had suffered from their first appearance of the Franks in the crusade beginning in 1096. And, and Franks is the term given to the new Western and, and Northern European faithful, uh, you know, people faithful to the Pope in Rome. These losses were considered shameful and perplexing to the Muslims. They were, they felt that they were signs of God's displeasure at divisions within the Muslim world. Because just like, you know, the, the Christian kings of Europe, the, the, the Muslim rulers, there was lots of infighting there throughout history as well. And they saw, they, they saw this as a call to the faithful faithful to rise up in arms, fight back against the Western invaders. And, uh, and one of the greatest foes the Muslims would encounter uh, during their, their battles with the Crusaders were the Knights Templar. So let's explore the origin of these knights and their rise to fame, wealth, and power in today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. One 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 nine, eleven nineteen CE. The Knights of the Temple, founded in Jerusalem, uh, first officially recognized at some point between January fourteenth and September thirteenth, uh, the year eleven twenty, by the local powers that be, and almost no one gave a single shit. Uh, seriously, not initially. You know, some crusaders with some battle experience said they were going to defend the city from Muslims, and others, you know, who, who didn't follow the Pope. You know, it was just kind of a yada yada yada. It's like everyone was saying we're going to do stuff like that. There was lots of little groups of dudes. Talking about how much glory they were going to bring to God. A lot of testosterone, a lot of, lot of chest puffing, a lot of peacocking. Uh, the initial Templars hadn't proven anything yet. Just a small, you know, group of dudes. Like, Let's go get them, you know. Uh, no surviving chronicles of the immediate time, either Christian or Muslim, actually paid any attention whatsoever to the first stirrings of this soon-to-be very famous order. Uh, the newly arrived pilgrims and crusaders to this new land, they were, they were hoping that someone was going to step up and, and help them out, though. Things were, things were looking rough. Uh, pretty quickly after they arrived for the newly uh, Christian or for the new Christian conquerors. Like on a Holy Saturday, March 29th, 1119, not a good day, not a good day for the new crusaders, uh, for the new settlers. This is, uh, this is the day in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday for you Catholics. Uh, things go real wrong for some early Christian settlers following the miracle of the Holy Fire at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, in this yearly ritual, an oil lamp kept beside the rock of Christ's tomb would spontaneously burst a light on the eve of Easter. Miracle, according to legend. Or someone would light it each, each year. One of those things happened. 
Now, no disrespect to Christian listeners uh, who believe in miracles. I'm not shitting on all miracles. As a skeptic, I do have my doubts about this particular miracle. I'm going to tell you why here in a second. The sacred flame was then used to light the individual candles and lamps of faithful men and, and, and women who gathered to witness it. So they're all gathering for this, this, this lamp. Unfortunately, in 1119, uh, once the miracle had taken place and uh, 700 ecstatic pilgrims, all happy to get their you know, lights lit, or lit <laughs> uh, ran out of the church, streamed into the desert in the direction of the River Jordan, intending to bathe in its waters to thank God, uh, rejoice. The river's about 20 miles from the eastern walls of Jerusalem, and the pilgrims never made it. They got ran fucking sacked. Once they descended from the mountains, almost made it to the river, they were ambushed by some Muslim soldiers. The soldiers fell upon the pilgrims who were virtually unarmed and weary. You know, after a journey of many days to, to get to Jerusalem, they were, they were weakened by fasting in Jesus' name. And it wasn't a fight at all. It was a slaughter. 300 worshipers cut down in battle with swords, another 60 taken captive, the rest run off in terror. Allah, so happy. He, so was Muhammad. Muhammad and Jesus, you know, both wanted a lot of blood. And today, Muhammad's team won. Uh, the Muslim victors actually heard a voice come down from the heavens that said, it, it was Muhammad's voice. And he said, fuck yeah, bros. You did great. Good killing today. Good stabbing. I like it. I like the uh, I like the enthusiasm with the steps. Uh, <laughs> but it, again, it is crazy. These religious fights. Um, now the slaughter, though, that's why I doubt the lamp miracle. Come on, like so. If God's going to grant a miracle at this location on this day at this time, why not let the miracle be? Uh, I don't know. Warning his faithful not to get their fucking heads cut off down by the river, right? As opposed to having a lamp light up. It seems kind of like a shitty parlor trick instead of like something some real valuable information. You know, uh, it seems kind of shitty uh, to have people get their heads cut off because they were excited about the lamp trick. You know, mysterious ways indeed. Uh, then something else uh, terrible happened to the Christians. Uh, also in 1119, on June 28th, very large force of Christians who were ocup- occupying Antioch going to battle outside the city against an army led by a Muslim ruler known as Ilghazi, a general who occupied nearby Aleppo. Uh, now, according to a, an eyewitness, the battle was fought in a fierce dust storm, uh, a whirlwind twisting itself upward like an enormous jar on the potter's wheel, burnt up by sulfurous uh, fires, and and the Christians were slaughtered by the hundreds. Their leader, Roger of Salerno, was, and this is a quote, struck by a knight's sword through the middle of his nose right into his brain and and died instantly. Of course he did. That's an exact quote. Man, uh, that would be a, I was thinking at first that'd be a really rough way to go, but then maybe, maybe not bad. I, I don't think you would suffer, probably, right? I mean, by the time you had a chance, by the time you realize like a sword has gone into your face, you're immediately dead. I would think I wouldn't think there was any like moment of like oh fuck no I dude I don't like this I don't like getting a sword in my face no thank you no you just you're just dead I I think I'm not a doctor from what my editor Jesse understands when he looked over uh, today's notes uh, he thinks I'm right about this he says it would sever your brainstem and spinal cord and probably just mess up your cerebellum which basically is just you know switching your off switch so not bad but he also did say that if you got de- decapitated. Uh, low enough to leave your brainstem intact that theoretically you might be aware that you're just ahead for a few moments. Like those horrific tales of blinking heads on the guillotine. From later. How crazy is that? What a weird way to die. It's like, oh, this, no, I am just ahead. This is not going to last long. Uh, the Christian's calvary, uh, cavalry excuse me, was destroyed. Their infantry was cut to pieces. Everyone not killed in battle was taken prisoner. And then many of them, I'm guessing, would soon, very soon wish that they had been killed in battle because this is terrible. After the battle, several hundred Christian captives bound together by their necks, marched through blistering heat, tortured by the sight of a water barrel from which they were not allowed to drink. They would keep the water barrel just out of their reach. God, yeah, because that's what Allah wants. He wants you to torture people. 
That's uh, what God wants. Some were beaten. Some were flayed. Some were stoned to death. Ugh. Others were beheaded. Uh, in total, roughly 7,000 Christians were killed. Um, uh, no, wait. I, I wrote seven, uh, thou- several – 7,000. I, uh, I apologize. I'm, there's so many numbers I'm writing. Now I'm, I'm as I'm saying this, I want to uh, – Oh yeah, no, that's that's right. I for just for a second, I had the previous. That that is right. I do remember. Yep, I just looked at my notes again. Sorry, that is right. I was thinking of the previous thing when the people were going down to the water, the pilgrims, and I, and I forgot for a second. This was an entirely different group of people getting murdered and killed and flayed. Flayed, by the way, means to have your skin peeled off. I want I want to I want you to know that for sure. In case you were thinking, you know, flaying doesn't sound too bad. I mean, I you know, stones stoning to death that sounds bad. Beheaded doesn't sound good, but flaying, no, uh, flaying is the worst. And again, it was God's will, you know, because Allah, a lot of people don't know this about uh, God. Allah hates people that he doesn't like still having their skin on. It, like, it just irks him. It insults him. He's like, get it off. Get the skin off those infidels. Ugh! I hate it. I hate that they still have skin on them. Um, luckily, the city had a defensive wall around it. So the Christians that were inside the wall were still alive. They still had a ton of non-flayed skin on their meat sacks. Well, following the battle, Ilghazi uh, began preparations for a direct assault on the city. Armed assistance had been urgently requested by those in Antioch from the kingdom of Jerusalem. Yeah, I bet. They just lost 7,000 people. No one was going to be able to make it in time, though. Uh, even worse, their army had just been cut to shreds. You know, it's gone. And they have, they have no milita- military leaders left alive. So then a man named Bernard of Valence, the Latin patriarch of Antioch, he stepped up to do what he could do to defend his congregation and his city. Basically, Bernard was the archbishop of Antioch, the surrounding area, second really in power in terms of church hierarchy in the new Holy Land Crusader states to the uh, holder of the Latin uh, Patriarchate of Jerusalem. Uh, the title of Latin Patriarch in Jerusalem, by the way, is still around, still given to the archbishop of Jerusalem. So Bernard, one of the highest ranking churchmen in all of the Crusader states, not looking forward to getting flayed or stoned, or getting his head cut off. He was against all of that. He was not a fan of any of that. He took command of what soldiers remained, ordered a nightly curfew uh, within the city, within the city walls, decreed no one was able to carry arms within the city except for the Franks, so just the Western European Christians. Um, And and again, that term is given to the Franks is to distinguish them from uh, Muslims, Jews, and also from uh, East Orthodox Christians, a.k.a. like Greek Christians. Bernard ensured that every tower along Antioch's defenses was garrisoned at once, armed with monks and clerics. Uh, Whatever uh, other able-bodied Christian layman they could find would have to assist them. Armed clergy, you know, what few knights they still had, guarded the gates, ramparts, towers, and walls. Bernard had participated uh, firsthand in the Crusades, and, and you know, while being a man of God, he was also battle-hardened. He had fought in battle before, and he was stunningly successful in this defense. And then after seeing that Antioch was well-defended, Ilghazi declined to pursue with a real siege, uh, and he called off his attack, you know? I guess I'm guessing he was like, damn it, you know, I wanted to flay some Christians, but I don't know. I guess they're uh, going to have to keep their skin for a while. You know, they, they seem really into keeping their skin. I, I would like, you know, as much Christian skin as the next guy, but I'm not getting myself killed for it. Uh, Bernard and other uh, crusaders in Holy Land leadership positions knew that it wouldn't be long before the Muslims attacked again. The top executives at Holy Land Incorporated were very concerned. Uh, they desperately needed more military support. They needed a standing army. They needed to organize their newly conquered land before they quickly lost it. And then after months of planning, the Council of Nablus convened on January 16th, 1120, under the auspices of King Baldwin II, member of the French royal family, who'd become king of the new Christian state of Jerusalem after initially uh, being named Count uh, of the other newly formed Christian state of Edessa and Warmond. Um, 
and there was also the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem. Uh, these guys all, all came together to organize a, a new government for this new land. And uh, no, I, I'm sorry, I misspoke again, man. There's, this 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 is I've revised this uh, today's show more than any show in recent memory because there's a lot going on. He was the uh, uh, the king of the, the new state of Jerusalem, and then he met with other important leaders like the uh, the Count of Edessa of Warman, the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem. Okay, so all these guys get together, all the new leaders of the new lands, and the purpose of this gathering uh, in Nablus, a little town nestled in a valley between two mountains in central Palestine, um, notable for its plentiful olive trees, was to decide who should volunteer to be flayed. That was the pressing question of the day. They were trying to work out a deal with El Ghazi. He wanted two Christian skins a month. Pretty reasonable, really. A lot of dudes would have asked for five. That was the going rate. That's nonsense. Uh, they were not gathered for that reason. That, what a terrible way to be gathered. <laughs> Just for, to have a who should be kicked out of the city to be skinned alive meeting. What a, what a terrible meeting if you get picked, right? Okay, it's decided then. Richard and William, you will be the first two skin sacrifices. No, I will not. I would much rather keep all of my skin. I, I need it. I need all of it. Stop making a fuss, William. You fought on the crusade. Your salvation is assured. It's really not a big deal. Well, then you give them your skin, Bernard. I will not. My skin is the only skin keeping this state from crumbling. You're just a cobbler. We can live without your shoemaking skin. In fact, the next cobbler could take your skin, should El Ghazi leave it nearby, and make several new sets of shoes that we could desperately use here. No, they gathered to, uh, to come up with a new set of written laws. Canons, you know, by which their new kingdom could be properly governed. They gotta get organized if they're gonna stick around. And uh, the Council of Navas produced 25 decrees touched initially on matters of jurisdiction between the secular and clerical authorities, and for the most part, actually focused on sex. I, I love this about medieval Europe, right? Just that they still, they, that's the most important thing. Uh, we're living under the very real threat of violent death at the hands of the Muslims, and we need to figure out how not to die quickly and violently. But first, we need to make sure that the dicks of our new land are being put into the proper holes. Proper holes for proper dicks. Priorities. Uh, no, declarations were made against sins, including adultery, sodomy, bigamy, pimping, prostitutions, theft, sexual relations with Muslims. Uh, punishments ranged from penance and exile to castration and nose slicing. Nose slicing. Just saying that makes me a little bit nauseous. That's, uh, I'm guessing nose slicing is just the equivalent of a, of a tiny bit of specific flame. Uh, tucked amongst uh, these laws was a was a formal pronouncement that would be fundamental, fundamentally important to the origin of the Knights Templar. It was Canon 20, and his first line stated simply that if a cleric takes up arms in the cause of self-defense, he sure not, shall not bear any guilt. And with this canon, the men who met in Nablus were, were not just working out a, you know, a new code of law and morality for the Holy Land. They were given birth to a revolutionary idea, one that would evolve before long. You know, into the notion, in fact, the religious men under arms might serve as a central plank in the defense of the crusader states. Because prior to this, it was unusual for, you know, men of God to take up sword. You know, there was that, uh, that struggle within Christianity where it's, you know, it's, it's peaceful, it's turned the other cheek, but it's also, you know, fight, fight for your religion. And, uh, you know, most of the time religious, you know, leaders, you know, previous to this obviously have absolved themselves of fighting. But now they're like, nope, not a sin. It's not a beast. It's totally okay. God's cool with it. You can, uh, you can take up arms. You can do what you need to do. And, it's, uh, and, and there's no problem, you know, as far as civil laws go. Um, the most important of these early men, <clears throat> excuse me, when it came to the uh, Knights Templar, would be Hugh of Payan, co-founder, first grand master of the Knights Templar, originator, first leader of the soon-to-be-famous order. He was, uh, he was, you know, privy to this early meeting. Frenchman Hugh of Payan was born sometime before the year 1070, probably in the village of Payan, hence the name. 
uh, some 90 miles southeast of Paris. Uh, we know little else about Hugh uh, uh, as far as his early life other than he was of sufficiently high rank to witness charters for local noblemen in France. So he wasn't a peasant. Uh, by the time the Council of Nablus assembled, uh, he'd been in the Holy Land for roughly as long as Baldwin had been king, maybe 20 months. He was a deeply religious man. He came from Rome to Jerusalem to pray. His plan initially was to serve in the new royal army of Jerusalem. You know, they did have a, uh, an army for the kingdom and then retire uh, from you know, life on the front line and become a monk. And he was not alone in making this plan. There were other men of the knightly sort in the city, and, and they wanted to do the same thing. They, and they began to cluster together at the most obvious spot for tourists and newcomers, uh, uh, backgrounds, various backgrounds and nationalities to meet, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is the site of Jesus' resurrection and burial, just over a mile from the Temple Mount, where Muhammad uh, ascended to heaven. Uh, this area is where the Knights Templar draws their name from. Solomon's Temple, also believed to have been built around this location, Area holds huge religious significance for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Partly why fighting, you know, between these different uh, religions uh, continues to this day. Uh, anyway, these knights. Some sources suggest it was initially between nine and thirty men, organically formed kind of a, a loose brotherhood, co co fraternity. You know, uh, and, and, there, and there was other similar little fraternities popping up around this time. Other later chron chroniclers uh, would write that Hugh of Payan approached King Baldwin II of Jerusalem. Uh, with eight knights, two of them were brothers, all of them uh, relatives by either blood or marriage, in order to form the Order of the Knights Templar. The other knights were Godfrey de uh, Saint Omer, uh, Payen de Mont Montedilie, uh, Archibald de Saint Agnan, Andre de Montbard, Geoffrey Bison, uh, two men recorded only by the names of Rosal and Gondomer. Uh, Baldwin approved the foundation of the order and trusted the Temple of Jerusalem to its care. Uh, these men, they weren't clergymen, you know, again, but they were religious, able-bodied warriors, pilgrims who could fight and also made the significant decision when they, when they formed and, and organized to, to lead a quasi-monastic life of poverty, obedience, chastity, you know, duty beyond the normal vows of a crusader. I can't even wrap my head around that, you know? Let us, let us fight to defend God, Daniel. Yes, yes, you, let us fight for him. And Daniel, let us swear allegiance to form a brotherhood and defend one another from the temptations of Satan that could crumble our holy quest. Okay, yes, yeah, that sounds, that sounds good too. And Daniel, let us avoid female temptations entirely and swear chastity and also poverty. Whoa, ha, whoa, whoa, Hugh. What? Look, hey, I, I don't know if this is right for me now. I was initially down for the fighting, but I was, I was kind of hoping to get rich, you know, doing it, if that worked out. And I would also... If I'm going to, you know, risk my life all the time, maybe get my fuck on from time to time would also be nice. Uh, these new knights, you know, they become, they become known to, you know, King Baldwin, again, who I mentioned earlier, and, and they impressed him. You know, he, he wrote a letter to Bernard of Clairvaux, a powerful religious figure of the day, to aid the knights of the Temple of Solomon prior to that big 1120 gathering. Uh, Bernard was an influential abbot, a.k.a. head monk, who ran an abbey in northeastern France, known to Rome, greatly respected for, for the religious writing Bernard produced. And thanks to Bernard and Baldwin's support, it was decided at the Council of Nablus that instead of being attached to the Holy Sepulchre, this, this pious band of knights should be given independence, some means of feeding and clothing themselves, access to priests who could lead prayers for them at the appropriate hours of the day, and, uh, and a place to live in one of the prominent areas of Jerusalem. So let's, let's make it official. Let's give you guys your own little spot. The crown would assist with the means of their upkeep, but their main task would be one of equal interest to the king, patriarch, every other Christian visitor to the Holy Lands. They would be responsible in the words of a charter uh, later produced in 1137 for the defense of Jerusalem and the protection of pilgrims. This tiny brotherhood, these religious bodyguards, would be devoted only to arms and prayer. And thus the Knights Templar is born, 
These men living roughly 900 years ago are the very first Knights of the Temple. And in their earliest years at the Holy Sepulchre, the Templars were a long way from the uh, wealthy and powerful organization they'd soon become. They were dependent on charity. You know, they'd get handouts for, you know, clothes. Even food would have to be donated to them. Uh, then shortly after that, the tax revenues of a few villages near Jerusalem were assigned to them by King Baldwin and Patriarch Warmond, uh, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, to cater for their food and clothing. But, but still, much of the first decade of their existence was uh, just a small number of brothers trying to dress in secondhand clothes, eating table scraps, and kind of barely getting by. And then Hugh of Payan and his fellow knights knew that if they're going to succeed in protecting Jerusalem's Christian inhabitants, pilgrims, and territories from the many enemies who threatened them, they needed to grow. They needed to build their numbers, their resources. They needed to get some money. So, uh, and so they're getting organized. They make a plan. And then six years later, Hugh of Payan and at least five early Templar brothers, they, they take off, make it back to France. This is 1126 to raise money and support for the new order of soldiers. He was, uh, he was sick eating secondhand meat and he'd been wearing the same pair of underwear since 1120. And while incredibly uncomfortable, the, that underwear had stopped at least two arrows from piercing his skin. They had become armor. Uh, no, but seriously, they needed some dough. Needed some medieval scratch, a little coin, needed some more men. And they were able to get all of that because uh, he was uh, incredibly charismatic. He was a charismatic ruler. He had to have been because, uh, you know, he'd been tasked with encouraging hundreds of dudes to part with their possessions, possibly even their lives, in exchange for uncertain rewards. His military recruiting tour had one, one main objective, help expand Christian territory back in the Holy Land, back in the kingdom of Jerusalem. King Baldwin II was planning a major assault on Damascus aiming to parlay a period of raiding that had begun late in 1125 into a full-on campaign of conquest. Baldwin wanted to permanently seize the great city, a one-time seat of the Sunni uh, Caliphate, from its ruler, the, the Turkish military leader, uh, Tautikin. Baldwin calculated that taking Damascus would require, in the words of William of Tyr, the entire military strength of the kingdom, and to give Baldwin that strength and to help his order survive, few and his knights visiting King Louis VI in Normandy, um, you know, they needed to get some, some money and some men, and they were given that. Uh, King, King Louis, he, he gave them, you know, uh, treasure, some gold, some silver, and then they visited the British Isles and would, would write that they were given treasures by all. And in Scotland, too, uh, much wealth entirely in gold and silver was sent to Jerusalem. Then he persuaded more men to go east and fight. He persuaded more men than anyone else had since the First Crusade. Donations continued to pour in from various uh, Western European kingdoms from various lords and ladies. And uh, sadly, Baldwin and the Templars would fail in their mission to take Damascus in 1129, but Hugh would be successful as far as getting more power uh, for the Templars. In addition to more men and funds, he also you know, made it part of his mission to get the Pope's official blessing. Because while that Council of Nablus had kind of you know, given some uh, little laws and established them a little bit of a, as an organization, that would be, it would be a whole other level if they could get the Pope to just declare them a new religious order and give them formal rules to live by, protection, you know, prestige. And in 1129, he got it. The Council of Tra formally assembled uh, for its first session on Sunday, January 13th, 1129. It was presided over by a, a papal legate, uh, Matthew Bishop of Al Albano, uh, representing Pope Honorius II. And by the end of this meeting, 68-point code of Templar conduct had been drafted in Latin, later known as the Primitive or Latin Rule. This, is, uh, this detailed the process by which Templar knights of the order uh, were to be selected and received, how they were to pray, which feast days they had to observe, what they should wear, eat, drink, where they should sleep, how they were to behave in public, with whom they could and could not socialize. A lot of rules in the rule. The rule allowed the knights to skip church services, uh, accepting that members were likely to spend much of their time on patrol or fighting in the field rather than you know, being a chapel. 
Templars substitute, uh, uh, were able to substitute each daily church service they had missed for a set number of repetitions of the Lord's Prayer, uh, known as the uh, Paternoster in Latin. And this was huge for future recruitment because everyone, even the most illiterate peasant in France, knew the Paternoster. And by reducing holy duties to the most mundane repetition of the best-known prayer uh, in Christianity, excuse me, sorry, uh, my, again, the, the allergies have been fucking brutal this spring. I take, uh, I've taken more allergy medicine uh, this spring than I have in any spring before my adult life. And just the pollen continues to pound me. So I apologize for the, the occasional sniffle. Uh, the Templars opened their pool of potential recruits to uh, dedicated and talented men of any rank, not just the rich. Uh, the rule also made clear that there were two distinct categories of knights, uh, those who were signed up for life, having abandoned their own wills, and those who agreed to join temporarily and fight for a fixed term. Templar knights were to wear habits of all white, which uh, signifies purity and complete chastity. Black or brown habits were prescribed for the lesser rank of Templar sergeants and squires, brothers who were sworn members of the order, but did not carry the full rank or training required of the Templar knight. Uh, turquoise and salmon-colored habits were given to dudes who weren't really in the order at all, uh, they weren't chased, uh, they weren't fully trained or really good at fighting, but they were fun at parties. And, of course, that last part is nonsense. With the new donations, which included land and homes and castles, monasteries of sorts were set up. Uh, life within a Templar house uh, was designed where possible to resemble that of a, a Cistercian, Cistercian excuse me, monastery. Meals were communal, to be eaten in near silence while a, while a reading was given from the Bible. Equal rations of food and wine were to be given to each brother, leftovers distributed to the poor. Uh, the rule also gave the Templars, and this is big, the right to kill enemies in the name of the church. It said, this armed company of knights may kill the enemies of the cross without sinning. Man, license to kill. Not only was slain humans uh, who happened to be unbelieving pagans and enemies of the son of the Virgin Mary, not a sin for the Templars. It was now an act worthy of divine praise. You know, just get those heathens. Go on, get them, just kill them, stab them, make them pay. Please, God, spill that Muslim blood. Jesus wants you to cut their heads off. Uh, but, but yeah, Pope just gave these dudes a carte blanche murder punch card. Uh, outside of fighting, the Templars were expected to live in pious self-denial. Uh, there were lots of other codes and rules too. Some pretty weird, like this one. Uh, three horses were permitted to each knight, along with one squire, whom, quote, the brother shall not beat. I love that they had to write out the don't beat your squire part. Now look, you guys, you can have a squire. You get one. You get one each. You know, he's going to help take care of the three horses you get. But here is the thing. You can't beat him. Yelling at him, fine. Encouraged and expected. Who doesn't enjoy yelling at a squire? They need to be yelled at. Mock him if you want. Belittle him. But don't beat the little fellas. Uh, band two for the Templars was a company of women, which the rule scorned as, quote, a dangerous thing. For by it, the old devil has led man from the straight path to paradise. The flower of chastity is always to be maintained among you. For this reason, none of you may presume to kiss a woman, be it widow, young girl, mother, sister, aunt, or any other. The knighthood of Christ should avoid at all costs the embraces of women, by which men have perished many times. And this part of the rule only applied to lifetime members. Married men were permitted to join the order. Uh, they were, of course, allowed to touch their wives, but they weren't, they weren't allowed to wear the white cloak, make it to the top ranks. You know, their wives were not supposed to even join their husbands in the Templar houses. Again, I love the details they added about which women the Templars weren't allowed to kiss. Not mothers or, or stepmothers or former stepmothers or old women with, with short hair or young girls, long or short hair, or beautiful maidens especially, but not, not even plain-looking shopkeepers or unfortunate-looking neighbors' nieces. They're, they're the worst, actually. And uh, 
and they should avoid hugging a woman at at all costs because that hug has led men to perish many times. Man, these motherfuckers were so scared of sex. <laughs> Holy shit. You know, it's some sex-obsessed bishop. Just the hug. The hug is the gateway to the boob. It gets you thinking about them. First, you can feel them against your chest. And then soon, trust me on this, you'll be apt to squeeze at least one. And boob squeezing is the first step to getting one of those satanic, woman-loving devil erections. And then, of course, the vagina diddling will follow, followed by (sighs) fornication. And then you're lost. You can't think straight on the battlefield because all you want is more sweet, sinful lady hole. Thoughts of pleasure. Take all the blood away from your upper head. Send it to the little head below. The devil's head. And that's how you get your upper head lopped off. The godhead. All because you had to hug Nana before she passed. One time, uh, Lucifina, probably not a big fan of uh, <laughs> Templar rules. So probably, she probably did like the Templars themselves, though. Badass dudes. Guessing she probably, you know, probably seduced a few. You know, maybe gets, got, got a few to abandon their vows. You know, she could have if she wanted to. A man's willpower, only as strong as Lucifina allows. Hail, hail Lucifina. Anyways, the order was to be ruled over by the, by the master, Templar, advised by a council of those brothers whom master knows, the master, excuse me, uh, who will give wise and beneficial advice. Obedience to the master's commands was essential, and once orders were given, they were carried out as though Christ himself had commanded it. So they had to listen to, you know, whatever the master says, master Templar, that's what they do. So the knights do. And it was in the master's power to examine and receive new recruits, to distribute horses and armor amongst the brothers, punish those who sinned or broke the rules, uh, use his discretion in enforcing the rule as he saw fit. Only the temple, only the Templar master could beat the squires as well. Only he could take a heavy hand to the little fellas. I don't know. I don't think, I don't even think he could beat them. As time went on, the Templar rule would expand, give the knights even more rules and power. After that initial draft, uh, you know, January 11, 29, Hugh of Payon, uh, he had achieved now one of his principal goals in traveling to Europe. He'd given his new organization a structure, a code of conduct, the blessing of the Pope. His friend Bernard, that Archbishop of uh, Antioch, wrote about how revolutionary the Templars were, saying, A new kind of knighthood seems recently to have appeared on earth. It def- uh, wages a twofold combat against flesh and blood and against spiritual hosts of evil in the heavens. These men lived for the sole purpose of destroying the faithless and casting out the workers of iniquity from the city of the Lord. Uh, big praise from the Big B. And Bernard was not the only one thinking seriously about the Templars. Far away from the Holy Land, another patron was thinking about how he could help support this new, newly founded order. His name was Alfonso, king of Aragon. And with his death, the Templars would get a massive financial upgrade. Uh, this was also, you know, kind of a, a new thing here. In July 1134, Alfonso, the battler, king of Aragon, set up camp outside the city of Fraga, medieval city. That is now a little town of roughly 14,000 people in northeastern Spain. And he commanded his servants to bring him his relics. Dude had relics. He thought they were important to help him win battles. And yet he had a badass nickname too, man, the Battler. That would give me pause. You ready to fight Alfonso? Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, I, I think I can fight Alfonso. Are you ready to fight Alfonso the Battler? Duh. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'd rather fight the Battler than the winner, but I don't really want to fight either one. Um... These relics, man, he had an impressive collection. Over the course of a long and colorful career, this uh, you know, now 61-year-old king had, had acquired fragments of supposed belongings of the Virgin Mary, several apostles, a few early Christian martyrs, and, a, and assorted other saints, all of which were housed in small ivory boxes leafed with gold or silver studded with precious gems. 
His finest relic was, was a piece of timber said to have come from the cross on which Jesus was crucified, which had been carved into a small crucifix, kept in a jewel-encrusted ark made of solid gold. I guess he had taken it from a monastery in Leon. And he's getting ready to uh, uh, try and take Fraga from Muslim hands. He wanted it. He laid siege to it in 1134. And I really feel like those relics speaks to the mentality of the time. You know, the mentality that led to the, the creation of the Order of the Templars. You know, where these, these people, they were very obsessed with religion in a very different way than even the most devout religious people are today. You know, they were, it was all they wanted to do, you know, was to, was to spread their religion, to be, you know, uh, heralded by the other people of their faith and to, you know, to gain glory by just kicking heathen ass. And they, you know, clearly believed in magic of sorts where they would bring these relics with them on the battlefield, you know. There's all these stories when you read about the Crusades on both Muslim and Christian side about them, you know, a lot of praying, you know, as they're getting ready for battle. A lot of, you know, come on, God, we can, like, we can do this. And, uh, yeah, this Alfonso was very, very religious uh, ruler. And he, and he was warned that he, by some, uh, by some, uh, some Muslims, uh, sent a message to him saying that if he didn't abandon his siege, a large army of other Muslim warriors were going to come and destroy him. And uh, with God and the saints as his witness, I guess he now declared that there would be no mercy. That really pissed him off. Like, how dare you warn me not to take this city? And now he wanted uh, just to destroy, just really just raise it to the ground kind of mentality. So with his forces, he moves to confront a Muslim convoy. Camels, their military guard, they then turn tail, flee, and he pursues them, and it was a trap. Uh, It was a small band of Muslim soldiers who lured him into chasing them. And then the rest of the Muslim army, uh, which had been divided into four additional columns, moved and encircled his his group and without delay began to attack with spears, arrows, stones, and other missiles. And then uh, meanwhile, the citizens of Fraga spill out of the city gates while he's being attacked and Muslim men and women, young and old, they, uh, they attack his camp where he had set up for the siege. Male villagers massacring non-combatant Christians living in the camp, uh, women uh, leading a general plunder, taking tents uh, or robbing the tents, excuse me, of food, equipment, weapons, siege engines, uh, they even stole his relics. They took his precious relics. Uh, they tore down his little tent chapel he'd made. Several bishops and abbots he brought along, they were killed in the battle, along with uh, dozens of his best knights, most of the army's leaders. Virtually all, all members of his household were captured. His entire infantry bodyguard of 700 soldiers was, were killed. In all his decades of warfare, which he'd fought many battles and sieges, you know, he had never suffered such a devastating defeat. He was not killed. He slashed and hacked his way fiercely uh, on the edge of the battlefield and was, and was uh, persuaded to escape with a small group of knights, but then died on September 7th, 1134, most likely from wounds sustained in the battle, although Christian and Muslim chroniclers attributed his death to grief. He was just so distraught that he lost that battle. So what does all that have to do with the Knights Templar? He was a big fan of them. Alfonso was a huge fan of the Templars, and before he died, he wrote him into his will. Uh, he named as his principal heirs three different orders. Uh, this is highly unusual. You know, he, he didn't have uh, a son and he didn't, you know, pass his you know, kingdom to like any kind of blood relative. He gave it to religious orders. He, gave, he split it up in, into thirds between the, the uh, canons of the Holy Sepulchre, the Knights uh, Hospit- Hospitaller, and the Templars, uh, whom his will described as the Temple of the Lord with its knights who strive to defend the name of Christianity. And to these three entities, he declared, uh, I bequeath my whole kingdom, as well as the lordship I have in my kingdom, the sovereignty and rights I have over all the population of my land. Just five years after the Council of Tra had given them a formal rule, 
the Templars now had been granted a third part of a sizable kingdom, the kingdom of Aragon, a sizable chunk of present-day Spain. Uh, due to political fighting in the wake of his death, they, they wouldn't actually receive rule of a third of the kingdom, but because of their favor with the Pope, you know, Pope, excuse me, the, the, the people who would take rule couldn't just like give them nothing and, they, and they'd have to be immensely financially compensated, you know, basically bought out, you know, for the going rate of a third of a kingdom, which was a lot of money and, and a lot of land. They got a lot of uh, land parcels. They got a lot of castles in the deal. And suddenly they were very wealthy. And then on May 24th, 1136, after bringing fame, fortune uh, to the little band of religious warriors he created, Hugh of Payan, he died. Uh, no contemporary chronicler mentioned the circumstances of his passing. After his death, the order he formed continued to expand its wealth and power. March 29th, 1139, Pope Innocent II issued a bull addressed to the Templars, gave them even more power, so much more power actually. Uh, without Pope Innocent II's support, I don't think we'd be talking about the Templars still today. There'd be a little footnote. But he told the Templar Knights to always bear on your chest the sign of the life-giving cross, that little red cross emblazoned on the Templar Knights' white mantles, which has become iconic. And he gave them an extraordinary range of privileges. He placed the Templars under the protection and tutelage of the Holy See for all time to come. So now they had to answer to no one but the Pope. They were made explicitly independent across Christian uh, Christianity, uh, Christendom, from the authority of kings and patriarchs, barons and bishops. Their customs were sweepingly declared to be free from the meddling of any ecclesiastical or secular person. Uh, the Templars were designated defenders of the Catholic Church, attackers of the enemies of Christ, a license so broad that it was effectively all-encompassing. You know, they were exempted from tithing as well, which alone was huge. They didn't have to pass any of their wealth they collected to their local bishop, archbishop, or abbot. This would allow them in time to amass untold riches. You know, it's like being able, it's like uh, being made like, I guess, a nonprofit, you know, and you get to, you don't have to pay taxes on any of your income. They could appoint their own private priests to administer the sacraments and divine offices, ignoring the authority of local bishops. So Templar priests answerable only to the Templar master, you know, or their local master. So they had, they had their own in, in, internal hierarchy now, uh, highly unusual state of affairs uh, because the, the master didn't even have to be ordained. And here's the big upgrade. They, they were protected by the ultimate papal sanction. Anyone who harassed them would be excommunicated forbidden to partake of the most holy body or the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and sentenced to severe punishment at the final judgment. Think about how revolutionary that is. The Pope made these Templars essentially above the law. They were answerable only to the Pope. They, they were the Pope's army now. Kings could not fuck with them, right? Anyone who harassed them would be excommunicated. That includes kings, you know? Uh, yeah, no one got to mess with them. They got to, they got to kill. They already had license to kill. Uh, now they don't have to, they don't have to pay taxes. They're not beholden to the rulers of any land, so they don't have to pay taxes in the various lands or castles to any of the rulers in those places. They get to keep all their money. They get to do what they want. You know, they get to kill who they see fit. Uh, they, they were. It was. It reminds me of when President Truman formed the CIA, right after World War II. You know, it's like this organization that's, that's able to now act autonomously, plan missions, carry them out, kill who you need to kill, as long as you're defending, you know, my land, my empire. You don't need anyone's permission, not even mine. That's a lot of power, you know? They didn't, and they didn't even have to go to the church. It's not like they had to check in, you know, with each mission. No, just, man, just fucking protect, protect the pilgrims, protect the Holy Land, and you can get as much money as you, as you need, and you can do what you want. Um, unbelievable. Uh, this is why they became so famous and, and powerful. 
So Innocent's support of the Templars did make sense. He, he'd been helped through a major political crisis between 1830 and 1838 by that guy Bernard of Clairvaux we talked about earlier, the influential French monk who, who, was, who was a big fan of the Templars. Uh, the papacy had fallen into a schism. Oh, man, not a schism. And uh, Bernard had backed Innocent's claim over some other dude named uh, Anticletus II. And Bernard's support greatly aided uh, Innocent's quest for the Holy Throne. So, you know, Bernard helped uh, Innocent become pope. And then once pope, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. He then helps out Bernard's favorite order, the Knights Templar. And the Templars' uh, excellent, excellent excuse me, relations with uh, the papacy would continue well into the middle of the 12th century. More donations now are flowing in. You know, they'd be given more prestige. They're, they're, the riches flowed in principally from France, England, and Spain. Uh, then in order to manage the properties and gifts they were receiving and to coordinate the process of funneling about a third of their income, you know, to the Holy Land that they needed to, to have to defend mountain passes, citadels, castles, you know, and everything else. They were also defending, you know, the, the, the routes to get their popular pilgrimage routes. Western Europe uh, became organized under the authority of senior officials, uh, uh, you know, within the Knights Templar, small grants of land parceled up into different estates overseen by a series of monastic-style houses known as uh, preceptories or uh, commanderies. And, and now they kind of became Europe's first corporation. Right, kind of uh, this quasi nation, right? They had massive growth, massive money influx. Now they got to get kind of organized themselves. You know, they got to organize these routes for pilgrims to follow to make it to the Holy Land. They got to make sure that each, you know, little area is properly funded. It become like, you know, a bureaucracy. And most Knights Templar would actually not be soldiers, they would be all the people kind of uh, running the corporation, so to speak. All the people making sure that, uh, you know, this, this, they have the right money here. And, you know, you got to have – you got to get these guys fed here and you got to get these guys housed and you got to get these guys overseeing these peasants who are working land that now belongs to the Templar, make sure they're doing their job. A lot of, you know, a lot of office work for the Templars now. Uh, they would lease out some of their vast holdings to be farmed for crops, grazed according to its location. Um, you know, uh, many of the preceptories would uh, have been, I guess, hard to distinguish from a, a regular kind of monastery. They were staffed by a handful of sergeants, had a roster of servants doing menial work to support them. Um, around this time also, uh, in the 1830s, the order made huge gains in England, profiting from a bloody conflict now known as the Anarchy that engulfed the kingdom following the death of King Henry I. Um, you know, like there was two two sides waging for the you know claim of the throne, and both were kind of going to the Templars for political support, spiritual assistance. Uh, and the Templars, you know, promised to uh, pray for their good fortune and immortal souls in exchange for getting, like, more shit. During the anarchy, uh, so many gifts flowed in, land and property in Oxfordshire, Herefordshire, Essex, Bedfordshire, Lincolnshire, a lot of shires, Berkshire, Sussex, so much, so much shire money flowing in. Uh, dozens of Templar houses are springing up, you know, all the way from the Gulf of, uh, Gulf, excuse me, of Genoa to the New Atlantic Kingdom of Portugal, which was also being clawed out of Islamic hands and resettled by Christians under the self-proclaimed first king of Portugal, Alfonso I. With every advance, each gift they receive, the Templars' wealth increases, their ability to pursue the holy war grows, and their fame spreads. In the 1130s and 1140s, they, they flood into Spain to help rid the Iberian Peninsula of Muslim control. You know, they were getting given fortresses there to, to protect, like the, the hilltop fortress in Monzon, proudly built by the 11th century Arab rulers of uh, Saragossa. Uh, it was redeveloped under Templar ownership to include uh, new defensive walls and towers and stables and barracks. And a lot of these Templar uh, castles and fortifications have survived to this day. And, and they're famous also. They have like, you know, elaborate tunnels underground to help people escape during sieges. Like they were really fortified really well. They were really good at maintaining and fortifying castles. And, um, you know, now they're, they have a stake in the Iberian Crusades because they're in Spain now. 
So by the 1140s, they're, they're famous all over the Christian world. And due to the network of castles and fortresses they'd uh, come to possess, they also became 12th century Europe's most important bankers. And this is part of the uh, Templar mythology. Not sure how intentional that was. I think it just kind of fell into their lap. It's like we have this route that we protect. And, you know, they became th – that route was the only way to basically get from like England or Spain or France all the way to the new kingdoms in the Holy Land – and so, you know, if you wanted, if you needed money to do some things over there to, you know, help with the crusade or establish, you know, a new life for yourself out there, you could deposit basically money in a Templar uh, castle slash bank in Paris or in Spain or in England. And then you could access money, you know, and, and you didn't have to carry it and risk having it stolen as you made it to the Holy Land. So this gives them a lot of money because then they become like a bank now, you know, and they're able to like fund other, you know, wars and loan money to kings and kingdoms. Yeah. They, they become their own little corporation. They, they're actively engaged in a Holy Land battles now with their new wealth and, and, and you know, extra men, winning some, you know, losing some. Uh, they failed to take Damascus from the Muslims in a siege in 8, 1129, that uh, siege that Baldwin was so into, King Baldwin. They didn't get it, but they did beat Muslim armies on other fields of battle, such as the Battle of Azaz in 1126, when Templars and other crusaders killed an estimated 2,000 Muslim warriors and lost less than 25 soldiers themselves. They were famous for being, you know, uh, very organized fighters uh, of the day. Some of the most organized, most well-trained men of medieval Europe. In 1147, more was expected from them. They were to assist the kings of Europe, not in a few skirmishes here and there now, but in another crusade, uh, the big second crusade, one that was uh, hoped to push Muslims out of the Holy Land forever. Were they up to this monumental task? We're going to find out soon. First, let's back up three years the event that led to the Templars galloping into crusading action, the siege of Edessa, this, uh, this battle would be the catalyst for Western Europe's second crusade. Uh, and, and let's talk about a monster uh, crucial to this battle that would make even Chikatilo shudder, a uh, Islamic ruler named Zengi. Uh, Please do not speak for Chikatilo. Only Chikatilo decides when to shudder. Do not make me wrestle, you suck man. I wrestle you so hard. Men are like to wrestle. He kind of he, he almost became Italian for a second there. Uh, from okay, November twenty eighth to December twenty fourth, uh, eleven forty four. We're going to talk about this siege of Edessa, and it involves a scary motherfucker, uh, the governor of Mosul in Aleppo, uh, named Zengi, a dude you didn't want to piss off. He was a man cut from the same cloth as Vlad the Impaler, bloodthirsty sadist, who psychologically intimidated his enemies uh, through extreme violence. Zengi was an accomplished warrior himself, who at sixty at the time of the siege was apparently still quite the archer, possessing a deadly shot honed through countless hours spent hunting everything from gazelles to hyenas. He was battle-hardened. He had decades of warfare beneath his belt. And now he wants Edessa. He'd previously crucified his own... This is the kind of guy he was. He'd previously crucified his own troops for marching out of line and trampling crops one time. Crucified him. Uh, nailed him to wood uh, because they trampled some crops. Left him to die. Uh, if his military commanders irked him, failed in battle, you know, he didn't uh, care for him anymore... He would kill them or banish them. Uh, sometimes he would castrate their children as further punishment. There's a story uh, about him getting into an argument with one of his wives, and then uh, he, didn't, he didn't like it, didn't like what she said, so he immediately divorces her and then has her dragged to a stable block, dragged to his horse stables, and then has the, the men who care for his horses rape her. Well, he watches. And this is what contemporaries uh, of, of his day say about him. I'm taking all this info from a bunch of university publications excuse me, one being called uh, Abominable Acts, The Career of Zengi by Carol Hillebrand from the Manchester University Press. She's a professor uh, of Islamic study at the University of Edinburgh, been a professor of history at Oxford, 
specializing in the Crusades, Middle Eastern, medieval history. So she seems to know her shit. And, uh, and, and I only mention a source now. I mean, all these episodes have tons of sources. I only mention it right here with Zengi because the depictions of him were just became so cartoonishly evil to me. I was like, is this, are these, is this shit legit? Did he really do this stuff? It started to seem like just slander and just myth. You know, but apparently he was this dude. Apparently, <laughs> even those who admired him thought he was terrifying. He was the Islamic Vlad the Impaler, basically, the, an Islamic Nero or Caligula, one of the most terrifying military leaders uh, of the whole theater of Islamic and Christian conflict. And uh, why was he such a bastard? Well, I don't have any historical evidence to back this up, but there is a chance he just wasn't getting a good night's sleep. Maybe Zengi was a sadistic cranky pants because he was sleeping on a pile of rugs in a tent on sand instead of on a premier best-in-the-game Lisa mattress. Yes, today's time suck. Today's final sponsor is Lisa, is Lisa mattresses, right? You time suckers have been buying and sleeping on their mattresses, and in doing so, you've been getting a great night's sleep. You've been supporting time suck by supporting our sponsors, and I hope you, uh, those of you who, who haven't gotten one of these mattresses uh, that are looking for a mattress, I hope you get one, man. They're so good. Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, Lisa's an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand, socially conscious, just like Time Suck. Time Suck donates monthly now. Lisa donates daily. For every 10 ma- uh, mattresses Lisa sells, they donate another mattress to a shelter through their 110 program, which is uh, phenomenal. They plant one tree for every mattress sold, donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. Unlike Zengi, uh, they have not cut off a single person's head that I know of. Uh, no, of course you haven't done that. So use the Time Suck promo code to get a huge discount on a mattress designed for all types of sleepers that features three premium foam layers. Try it in your own home for 100 nights risk-free, available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box to your door. Try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, uh, Virginia Beach, over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. Lay on one until it gets weird in the store and you find yourself saying, what, what's this big deal? I like, uh, I like sleep here. Uh, and, you know, and then you're asked to leave. Get $160 off when you go to Lisa, L-E-E-S-A, lisa.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description. If you need a mattress upgrade, use the promo code and get one. Now back to the siege of Edessa. Edessa, the city he sieged, uh, Zengi, was a coveted jewel of the Christian East, a cosmopolitan blend of Greek, Armenian Christians, the Franks, relatively small ruling class of the crusading Franks whose homes, shops, and bejeweled churches were, according to historical witnesses, surrounded by a massive wall protected by lofty towers. Uh, Edessa possessed the holy shrine of the apostle St. Thomas, Doubting Thomas, St. Thaddeus, dozens of other precious relics and monuments ruled by Count Jocelyn II. Now, Jocelyn appears to have been an incompetent jackass of a leader, according to his contemporaries, who was viewed uh, as a mediocre military campaigner at best, drunk womanizer, just kind of a, just kind of, eh. And uh, while, while Zengi prepared to ransack his town, he and the majority of his army were several days traveled away, just chilling out in some other city within his kingdom, leaving Edessa virtually unguarded. And so while Jocelyn was away, Zengi has his men dig a tunnel beneath a vulnerable stretch of the city wall. And uh, this is so genius to me, the way they, they ruin the wall and let themselves in the city. Uh, he digs a tunnel that goes underneath the city. It's all, you know, support beams and structured uh, so they can, you know, so they can dig it. And then once it's all dug, they, they, these, these uh, beams that they use to make tunnel that have been deliberately smeared with grease and tar and sulfur so they'd be very flammable, uh, he lights it on fire, lights the tunnel structure on fire. It burns you know, very fast, 
and then collapses the tunnel, which causes a sinkhole above the tunnel, which causes a large section of the stonework of the wall uh, to crumble. The mortar holding the fortification, protecting the city, cracks, crumbles, whole structure falls apart, large gap about 150 feet uh, cross opens up and is forced to just rush over the rubble and put the city to the sword. 6,000 men, women, and children are killed on day one. Panic grips the, uh, the city. Of course it does. They're stampeding to, to, to try to get to the fortified citadel of the Franks in the middle of the city. This only leads to more deaths. Uh, you know, and the, the rush of people getting in there, you know, dozens of more people are trampled. A rumored 10,000 children uh, were taken and sold into slavery from the city. Uh, the Archbishop of Edessa, a man named Hugo, is literally cut to pieces with an axe, like cut to actual different pieces. Shit was so brutal back then. The Muslims taken back Edessa without even having to put up much of a fight. And the Western kingdoms of Christianity were outraged and furious and plans for another crusader drawn up. So by 1147, forces planning a new crusader gathering around the Templars' home now in Paris to march back to the Middle, uh, to the Middle East, you know, take back Edessa, uh, you know, push the Muslims back out of their new kingdoms. The French King Louis the, 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 uh, VII, King Conrad the, the Third um, of Germany, agreed to lead the crusade this time around. They're going to go bigger than they had in the first crusade. Actual kings now leading this one. And the Templars are going to go and uh, accompany and protect them and assist them in battle. Well, they're, they're, at least Louis. Uh, Louis. Uh, Con- Conrad st- uh, struck out without Templar assistance. That didn't work out well for him when he came down from Germany. King Conrad III, uh, III led roughly 25,000 troops down from Germany, and they were all but annihilated by Muslim forces near Dorylium on October 25th. Less than one in five of his troops survived. His men were slaughtered. The remaining roughly 2,000 troops met up with King Louis VII's troops at the small Turkish settlement of uh, Lapidium, marched towards Odessa, and then Conrad falls ill, uh, recovers in Constantinople, and then reaches Jerusalem and reconnects with King Louis and the Templars a few months later. I can't find a historical uh, a record, can't find a single one that gives a definitive number of total troops King Louis led, but I guess within his ranks were approximately 300 Knights Templars. Uh, and they travel along various routes that the various Templar fortifications had been protecting. And they continue cautiously along the coastal road that eventually would lead them through a steep pass over Mount Cadmus in present-day Turkey. And there they encounter Muslim forces. Turkish forces had been shadowing the army for miles, sprang forth upon them, fell upon them. Their main and rear divisions uh, who were st- still struggling up the slope to get over this mount as they tried to go through the pass. King Louis was unhorsed early on during the battle, took refuge uh, depending on accounts, either uh, amongst the rocks or, or hit up <laughs> in a tree. Uh, hiding up in a tree during battle. That had to have been embarrassing afterwards when a lot of your guys die, and meanwhile you've been hiding up in a tree. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't also hide up in a tree, but uh, you're probably not going to talk much about that later if you, if you live. During the slaughter and chaos, the Templars distinguished themselves as the only disciplined fighting force within uh, King Louis' ranks to, capable of, of delivering counter blows to the Muslims. If not for the band of just 300 Templars, King Louis, his queen, and the rest of his ranks would have perished for sure. By the time darkness uh, had fallen, the Turks had been driven back uh, several times by the, uh, the Templars. And the Templars and Crusaders received severe losses, particularly to their horses and baggage train. Uh, to my knowledge, though, to my uh, research, uh, even in the most stressful moments of this battle, no squires were beaten by their knights. So they're still following the rule. So that's pretty good. After either sneaking out from behind some rocks or climbing down from a tree, King Louis uh, turned the command of his entire army over to the Templars, saying, you know, basically, you, you guys do it. If you, uh, I don't know if he said this, but maybe he also said, you know, if you, if you, if you need me going forward uh, and you can't find me on battle, just, just look up in the trees. I'll be hiding. There's a good chance I'll be hiding. I don't like this as much as I thought I would. Just, and if you do me, do me, do me a solid. 
don't stare too long at me when I'm in the trees and alert the Muslims to my location, if you don't mind. Uh, the Templars, they're able to fight off four additional attacks as, as they take the remnants of King Louis' forces to the Byzantine port of Adelia. Once there, <laughs> King Louis sounds kind of like a dick. He abandons the common crusaders who had fought for him, sails with his wife and leading nobles to Antioch. And then the people he abandoned <laughs> just died of the plague. This is according to the accounts. They either died of the plague or starved to death or had to sell themselves into Turkish slavery to survive. That's fucking terrible. You know, initially in the battle, King Louis is like, we're going to do this. We're going to take back. We will take back the kingdom for the glory of God. And everybody's like, hey, we're going to take back. King Louis is going to take us down there and kick some ass. And he's like, yes, we're going to kick some ass. And then the first battle, like they, you know, they see him like, what's he fucking doing in the tree? Why is he in the tree now? You know, and then after he's like, sorry about the tree thing, but I'll going forward, I'm going to be much better. I'm going to be a better leader. And then they make it to a place where they can sail away. It's like, oh, thank you, King Louis. We're going to, no, no, you don't, you don't get in the boat. You, I'm sorry. You're going to have to, I know you followed me. I know you gave up all your possessions and life back in France. And I told you some things, but uh, look, I got to, I got to do what I got to do for me. You know what I'm saying? You hear me? You feel me? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a work on me now. I got to do me now. And you guys, not going to be good for you. You're probably going to starve, but it, take my, sell yourselves into slavery. It's really your best option. It's terrible. March of 1148, King Louis arrives in Antioch with no army, no money, uh, you know, not a good reputation. And then the Templars pr- proved themselves to be valuable again. You know, he'd been very good to them. So they, they loan him such a great amount of money to continue the crusade that uh, he had to uh, take half of France's annual income to pay them back later. 30,000 pounds, 2,000 marks of silver. Uh, and then Louis amasses a new army of crusaders. Um, I'm guessing he had to have a talk with the Templars. Hey, when we're getting the new recruits, could you not – let's not talk about the tree. Don't tell them about the tree and don't tell them about abandoning everyone to starve to death. If you don't, I don't think that will be good for recruitment. Um, but but they, they, they get a bunch of people and then uh, uh, King Louis does another thing. So, you know, makes another bad decision. After a big series of meetings begun on Thursday, uh, June 24th, 1148, the feast day of St. John the Baptist in the town of uh, Palmyra near Acre, a meeting that would be known as the Council of Acre, a meeting attended by, and by the way, it is pronounced Acre just to avoid pronunciation uh, emails for that word. I know it's spelled Acre. I know the word is usually pronounced Acre. Uh, the ancient city is known as Acre uh, from everything I found. Uh, so yeah, these meetings attended by more or less every were important person in the uh, crusader kingdoms king conrad king louis 18 year old king baldwin iii of jerusalem uh and in this meeting louis uh steers the meeting into attacking damascus instead of Edessa. he thinks they should just go for damascus that that'll be you know more prestigious even though they'll get it they'll get a Edessa later and Edessa, remember is the whole reason they had they had started this crusade uh, of, of Edessa getting sacked now historians puzzled by this decision to this day uh doesn't make a lot of sense because in 1148 the, the governor of Damascus was technically an ally of the kingdom um, of Jerusalem. And uh, both, you know, kingdoms shared a common enemy uh, of the, you know, Zengi, that guy we talked about earlier, that man who, you know, was fucking terrible and uh, crucified his own troops and had one of his wife, you know, raped. Uh, that guy was killed in his, in his sleep by a servant. He'd probably tortured or castrated back in 1146, but his kingdom, you know, lives on. His, and also the Pope had sent the crusaders again back to take Edessa, not Damascus. Uh, the decision to no longer siege Edessa may have been based on the fact that by the time they finally got there, basically all the Christians who were living in Edessa were dead. Uh, that Count Jocelyn guy, the guy that wasn't, you know, a great leader, he did try to retake his city when, when it, after he made it back, after he was gone for a little while, when it had been sacked. 
and the decision to do this resulted in the death or enslavement of the remaining Christian population a few months later. He himself survived only to be captured by Muslims a short time later. And man, the fates of some of these people, uh, he was captured and then he was, quote, publicly blinded, which I guess uh, was a painful thing. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if they burned his eyes out or exactly how they blinded, but they blinded him. Then he was chained up in an Aleppo prison dungeon where he would die there uh, in 1159. So much horrible death in every medieval suck. Thank Nimrod. We did not live back then. Hail Nimrod for not living in medieval times. Anyway, bad call by Louis to pursue Damascus. It was heavily guarded. Local geography made it a real pain in the ass to attack. So the, the city walls, uh, while they were relatively small and weak, they were surrounded by miles of orchards, miles of fruit trees, and this dense thicket of trees, you know, where they, they, it was walled off into little plots that would have to funnel sieging troops into little single track paths. So, you know, very hard to get your siege weapons over to the walls when you have to go through the orchard. So between July 24th and July 29th, 1148, the siege of Damascus takes place. William of Tyr described the tense, claustrophobic approach to Damascus as the armies of the three Christian kings picked their way, often in single file through the narrow orchard paths on the outskirts of the city. The tracks they used were, quote, wide enough to allow gardeners and caretakers to pass through them with pack animals that carry the fruit to the city. Uh, but for large body of troops dragging weapons and the machinery of war, leading oxen and camels, hauling a huge baggage train, they were dangerously inadequate. Defenders hid between the trees. They would leap out to attack the soldiers as they passed, or they would take aim from the various watchtowers placed here and there to guard the orchards from trespassers. Uh, William said, from these vantage points, they kept up a constant downpour of arrows and other missiles. Mud walls hid men carrying lances who spied on the invaders through peepholes waiting for the best moment to spear their enemy from the side. Fuck, man. The crusaders advanced in peril of instant death, William wrote. From every direction, there was equal danger. Think about that as your life. You're walking through this fruit orchard, you know, all of a sudden you get to where there's like a mud wall in your side, you know, you're tired, you don't even pay attention. All of a sudden, a lance just shoots out from a hole in the wall and stabs you to death, you know, or you're walking along and all of a sudden just a bunch of arrows rain down upon you and you can't see shit because you're, you're in the trees. It truly is that you can't see the forest from the trees kind of thing. Oh, a terrible. Reminds me of like grown up, some grown up version of like the war games I would play as a kid. I don't know if any of you played those, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time in the woods as a kid, you know, and you'd be like one, you have a couple friends, you know, there's somebody was the bad guy and the bad guys usually hide behind the trees. You know, they shoot you from behind the trees. It's one of those one of those games you played that would always end with a different version of the same argument that I see now in my kids. Those games always ended with like, I shot you. No, no, you didn't. I no, I dodged it. You can't dodge your arrows. Yeah, yeah, I can. I can. No, you can't. I shot you, you asshole. I'm telling my mom you call me an asshole. No, wait, okay, wait. You did I okay, you're right. I didn't shoot you. Uh well, this treacherous landscape doesn't stop the crusaders from advancing, you know. They were like, now nah, man, God's on our side, let's get them. Let's get those fucking Muslims. Burn them, burn their city. Come on, let's get those infidels. Uh, the Templars and Crusaders, they force a path painstakingly through the orchards, demolishing little walls and barricades set up along the way, hacking their way between the trees. Finally, they reach the banks of the River Barada, passed under which uh, a river that passes under Damascus's city walls. A regiment had been assembled on the banks of the river, lined up with catapults, archers to defend the city gates. But uh, a furious direct charge by Conrad's German cavalry uh, scattered this first force. Knights leapt from their horses, ran forward with their swords swinging, Conrad himself fought in the fray with noted success. It was said he savaged one Turkish knight so grievously that he cut off, this is a quote too, cut off the man's head, left shoulder, arm, and part of his torso with a single blow. I mean, that sounds a little outrageous to me, but that's what supposedly he did. And that is some badass medieval king shit if that went down. 
That is one of the best scenes in a really good big budget movie that hasn't been made yet. That's some Hollywood blockbuster king shit. That's some Gerard Butler in the 300 shit. So soon the river leading to the western suburbs of Damascus was secured. The crusaders now began digging in, erecting their own barricades in the orchard, you know, uh, building it with trees that they cut down from the orchard. The, and then these guys got cocky, you know, again, under, they're under Louis' leadership primarily. And I feel like he was just not good at this. They're, they're so confident of a swift triumph, they didn't bring siege engines uh, or provisions, uh, you know, to last more than a few days. And then abruptly, they decide to abandon the offensive on the western side of the city and move instead to a new position in the southeast where, uh, you know, they, their intelligence suggested the orchards were thinner, the walls weaker, and a victory would be faster. And the, the removal of this army causes widespread grumbling. People aren't happy. They think like, no, man, let's just take it here. And, uh, and this grumbling would be justified because once it gets to a new position, uh, they find it, it was totally well defended. Their intelligence was wrong. It's not at all an open door to conquest. And there's not enough orchards now to feed their besieging army. So now the army is st- starting to starve. Man, if, if you're going to take the time to take over a fruit orchard, stay in the fucking orchard. Eat that fruit till the fighting's over. Uh, says the guy who has no fighting experience. Any possibility of returning to the west side of the city had immediately been cut off. Uh, having the, seen the Franks move, the city's defenders, they snuck out, they barricade the roads with huge rocks and you know, fallen trees guarded by archers so the guys can't make it back to the original base they just secured. So the Christians now can no longer go forward. They can't make it back. You know, The leading lords assemble for a conference and they conclude after uh, a, a terrible discussion with accusations of treachery are thrown around. That basically, the only strategy now is just to pack up and go home after all that. After all that. After all the people died getting, making it all that way, they're like, ah, shit, let's go back. These men had traveled thousands of miles, enduring disease, starvation, shipwrecks, ambushes, poverty. I mean, there's so many. I mean, just the detail of that trip, I gave you all of it, would be a whole suck into itself, you know? Uh, and they're trying to follow in the footsteps of the first crusaders and win a bunch of magnificent victories in the name of the Lord, but in the end... The eastern thrust of the Second Crusade turns out to be nothing more than a four-day hike through a booby-trapped fruit field, few isolated skirmishes, and an impotent retreat. Man, worst summer vacation ever. Heading back to Jerusalem, adding to their shame and embarrassment, the army encountered numerous ancient street vendors selling, I came for a crusade, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Just, you know, so that stung a little extra. That, that, of course, that never happened. But yeah, they, they take it back. Conrad left the Holy Land in September. 1148, uh, Louis stayed for seven more months celebrating Easter in Jerusalem before heading home with his head down to, to France in late April. This crusade didn't work out nearly as well for the first one, but despite not taking Damascus, and, you know, they don't even try for Edessa after that defeat. They really don't make any progress at all in the second crusade. The legend of the Templars grows because Louis came back uh, an even bigger fan of the Templars than he was when, you know, when he left. He felt like he owed his life to them. So at least he was good that way. You know, he felt like they they had done their job with as much diligence and devotion as anyone could have reasonably expected. Their purpose was to protect pilgrims, and they did protect him. You know, in their role of escorting, defending, you know, training, financing, advising, fighting alongside the pilgrims of the Second Crusade, they did their duty. They risked their lives. They, they courted bankruptcy when they loaned him all that money to prop up his effort uh, to continue the crusade. And so, you know, again, not dis- despite not destroying Muslim armies, uh, they were seen as a more capable or as a more than capable fighting force. You know, they continued to help secure what crusader states remain, such as Jerusalem, against Muslim attacks for decades. They continued to help protect Western pilgrims on their journey to Jerusalem and other Holy Land destinations, still under Christian control, and they continued to grow in wealth. And they did kick some major ass from time to time. Let's jump up to 1177 and talk about one of those ass kickings. 
On November 25th, 1177, 16-year-old King Baldwin IV, ruler of the kingdom of Jerusalem, a dude also known as the Leper King. I had heard that term before. I didn't know who it was. The Leper King, he suffered from leprosy. This poor bastard, uh, during this battle, this, this poor, very brave, a tough dude, uh, fought from horseback, used his sword with his left hand because his dominant right hand was, was rendered useless recently from leprosy. Uh, leprosy, in addition to essentially rotting off your skin, can also attack your nerves and damage joints and wreak all kinds of extra havoc on your deteriorating body. That would be terrible. And because it was contagious, how much would it uh, suck to have been part of his court, right? Uh, he was also supposed to produce a male heir, as kings were. How terrible for whoever was supposed to be his queen. Uh, luckily, there was no queen. He never wed. Reading about him, I actually wondered, like, can leprosy rot off your dick? Like, I wonder if it rotted his dick off. I had that thought, and then I, I took it probably to a place I didn't need to, and I Googled, can leprosy rot off your dick? And just in case you're also curious, <laughs> there's no evidence of that. There is no evidence of that ever happening. So he probably did, in fact, have a working dick that historians didn't talk about that he could have made heirs with. Uh, but this poor guy, he died at the age of 24 after leprosy further incapacitated him, left him blind in the end. Uh, the crown would end, then go to his nephew, who sadly would also uh, not be healthy, would die at the age of nine. Not sure if he had leprosy or not. Historians just described him as being sickly, and no one expected uh, that kid to live to adulthood. Well the, well, the leper king, several thousand infantrymen, 500 Templar knights, go up against an army of 26,000 Muslims led by Saladin, the sultan of Egypt and Syria. Saladin was marching towards Jerusalem with his large army to take the kingdom from the Christians and the leper king and his Templars rode out to intercept him. Uh, they caught Saladin's men totally by surprise as they were attempting to cross a stream. They were weary from travel and panicked. And when the Templars attacked, they scrambled to perform defensive lines. And uh, the young king was, was seen fighting the leper king, fighting in the thick of battle, bandages covering his sores as he fought. They kicked some serious ass. They inflicted heavy casualties. Saladin only escaped himself by fleeing on the back of a camel. By nightfall, Saladin's army scattered and fighting with no real leadership, lost 90% of their men, over 20,000 estimated to have been slaughtered, while the Leopard King lost only around 1,500 total troops. So go, Leopard King. For the Leopard King's a jolly good fellow. The Leopard King's a jolly good fellow. The Leopard King's a jolly good fellow. Shit, I think his pinky just fell off. That's what they may have sung. I don't have any evidence of that, but I'd like to think they sung that. And then regretted it because he was like, he gave him a look like, fuck, dudes, we all know I have it. Why would you add that part at the end? Had the Knights Templar uh, not been there to assist young King Baldwin, who would die in 1185, excuse me, odds are Jerusalem falls to the Muslims in 1177. Uh, so that was a nice victor, a victory for the, for the Templars. Saladin would take Jerusalem from the Templars less than a decade later, though. Uh, less than, less than, uh, or less, yeah, less than a decade later. And also two years after Baldwin, the King fifth death in 1185. Um, so yeah, that, that would be in 1187. So let's talk about that. July 4th, 1187, Saladin would pave the way for the fall of the kingdom of Jerusalem with a victory in the battle of Hatton. This battle was featured in that old Orlando Bloom, Liam, Liam Neeson, Eva Green movie, kingdom of heaven. For those of you who saw it, uh, Saladin already had Damascus in 1183. He'd taken Aleppo. By 1187, he controlled the southern and eastern flanks of the Crusader states. Two months prior, following the death of the leper king's nephew, the, the child king, Baldwin V, there was various claims to the throne that left a power vacuum there. A lot of chaos. That sounds you know, familiar. We've talked about those things happening numerous times in medieval Europe. Recently in the Joan of Arc suck. Fucking power vacuums adding to further instability to an incredibly unstable world. Uh, the current master of the Knights Templar, Gerard of Ridefort, Others were sent from Jerusalem to Tiberias to negotiate with Raymond III of Tripoli 
to support the claim of Guy of uh, Lusian to be king. Knowing the journey would be dangerous, Gerard uh, traveled with about 130 knights and, and 400 infantrymen. And they're doing this again. They're traveling to kind of like, no, guys, we got uh, we got to decide on who's the leader and protect ourselves from the Muslims. Well, unbeknownst to them, Saladin had sent a small force to Tiberias in retaliation for a Kingdom of Jerusalem attack on one of his caravans. Some accounts claim he sent as many as 7,000 men. 700 seems to be more likely. Uh, accounts of this battle from contemporaries vary wildly. And that's one thing, too, if you're a student uh, of the Templars. I, like one of the books I was reading, one of the sources talked about how there is like a, basically accounts vary pretty wildly about a lot of these things. When you're talking about numbers of people who died, even like some of the names who supposedly fought in some of these battles, it, you know, legends got tossed around on both sides. And, and eventually, eventually like this uh, historian said, you just got to kind of pick one and hope it's right. So if there's, there's some things in this episode, you're like, I don't know about that. Well, neither do the historians. Saladin ki- uh, forces kicked the shit out of the Templars. Allegedly. Uh, no, that did happen. This did happen. Uh, only three Templars survived the attack, including Master Templar himself, again, Gerard of Rideforce. They, they got really slaughtered. And then while the Kingdom of Jerusalem is still reeling from this loss, Saladin attacks again. He sends the largest army he'd ever assembled to Tiberias, a little over 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem. He led around 30,000 men, including about 12,000 regular cavalry. The Crusaders fought back with an army of about 20,000 men, including 1,200 knights from Jerusalem. On July 3rd, Saladin lured Crusader forces into moving their field army away from their encampment by some springs. Uh, man, Crusaders, first first you leave the fruit trees, and now you're leaving the water. Not good, and it really wasn't good. Once the Crusaders left the water, pursuing a small force of Muslims, a larger force cut them off. It's like the orchard all over again. They leave the supplies they need to you know, prolong their battles, and then once they leave the spot that has either the food or the water they need, the Muslims cut them off for going back there. And then the Muslims surround them, and then uh, they do stuff like set grass on fire around the Crusaders to uh, have the smoke, you know, pour over them, make them even thirstier. Pretty genius. Uh, the Muslims surrounded the camp so closely that according to a chronicler of the event, a cat could not have escaped. Uh, the Crusaders became despondent, tormented by thirst and smoke. You know, Saladin's men are jubilant in the anticipation of their victory throughout the night before um, really attacking them. They, they further demoralized the Crusaders by praying, singing, beating drums, showing symbols and chanting. And then on the morning of July 4th, thirsty and demoralized, the Crusaders break camp, change direction to try and make it to some springs in the village of Hatton. Their ragged approach was attacked by Saladin's army, blocked the route. Any possible retreat, he blocked as well. Some Crusaders were able to try to, uh, to sneak out as they tried to make it now to Lake Tiberias to get water there. And they were able to escape and make it to Tyr. Uh, overwhelmed by thirst, the rest of the army are just butchered or taken prisoner. Uh, when all was said and done, only around 3,000 total Christians escaped defeat. And remember, there was, uh, you know, to start the battle, there was a force of of around 20,000. So, yeah, 20,000 down to, to three. All the Templars were either killed or taken prisoner. Uh, all of those taken prisoner, around 200 knights, with the exception of the Grand Master, Gerard of Ridefort, were decapitated. So about 200 Templars literally lost their heads in this battle. Gerard is released by the Saladin, uh, by Saladin, excuse me, on the condition that he convince a Templar fortress to surrender peacefully. And then he goes to Tortosa, uh, where instead of convincing the uh, Templar forces there to surrender, he leads the Templars' defense of their castle, which uh, holds out even after the town of Tortosa uh, falls to Saladin's siege forces. So fuck, suck it, Saladin. I'll teach you to release the Templar. Uh, Gerard then makes it to, to Tyr, where the Templars had a large amount of money uh, given to them by King Henry II of England. Uh, that stored there. Tyr was also where the remaining crusaders fled after the Battle of Hatting. By uh, the end of 1187, 
Tyre would be all that remained in Christian hands from the original kingdom of Jerusalem. This is one little city on the coast. This one little town. This town was stood a siege by Saladin and ended on January 1st, 1188. Uh, and everything else, again, including Jerusalem, had fa- fallen back into Muslim hands. In 1189, Gerard would be captured once again by Saladin when he led more Templar knights to fight in the siege of Acre that kicked off the Third Crusade when Europe rallied again to attack Saladin and take back some of the Holy Land. First Crusade, real good. Second Crusade, real bad. Third Crusade, pretty good. Uh, not as good as the first. Ships of soldiers and more Templars make it to tier between 1187 and 1189. And they decide to take a stab at the port city of Acre as well, about 30 miles south. Uh, the siege of Acre begins in August of 1189. They would take the city uh, after a steady diet of reinforcements arrived in ships from Europe full of people like King uh, Richard the Lionheart in July of 1191. Uh, but Gerard would not see that victory. He would be decapitated. He would also lose his head. You know, he was the one guy let go from the previous fight that didn't lose his head out of the Templars. And then uh, once Saladin took him prisoner again, he's like, ha, fool me once, sh- shame on me. And when I see you next, I'm going I'm to cut your fucking head off. And uh, many other Templars were also lost in that battle. Uh, the victory improved things temporarily once again for the Crusading Franks, which also did improve things for the Templars. After taking back Acre, uh, the Templars would randomly be put in charge of the entire island of Cyprus in 1191. Uh, Richard the Lionheart, King of England, ended up uh, conquering Cyprus kind of by accident on his way to this uh, Third Crusade. Some of his ships on the way to Acre crashed near the island nation and the soldiers made it to shore and then were taken captive by local Byzantine governor. And then Richard's sister and wife needed to enter a port in Cyprus and were denied. They were not allowed to get water there. So when he made it, he's pissed off and he conquered it to take his men back and then decided it would be a good place to keep as a base to launch crusades from because, you know, it's very close to Jerusalem and all that. Uh, The locals were unruly though and he didn't want to, you know, get bogged down in bureaucracy and get distracted from his crusade efforts. So he he sold the island to the Knights Templar for 100,000 uh, Byzants or Byzantium gold coins, 40,000 of which was to be paid immediately, the remainder be paid in installments. And they ruled it, the Knights Templar, for about a year. And then uh, on Easter Sunday in 11, uh, excuse me, 1192, they talked King Richard into taking it back because I guess uh, the, the locals were, were very difficult to rule. Just a, just a weird little piece of trivia. The Order of the Knights Templar had their own Mediterranean island nation for a little while. Uh, just owned, just owned it. Uh, at this point, with the Templars still kicking ass, you know, kind of, in 1192, let's leave today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Man, so much fighting. Uh, I hope it's made sense. I know it's a lot of names and dates. So much back and forth, man. But that's it, it really was such a chaotic time. Man, the Holy Land. Think about how many have died trying to help claim it for the religion. Just intense shit. Uh, after losing their headquarters in Jerusalem in that second crusade, the Templars would set up a new headquarters in Acre after that was taken back. And while they remained a powerful player in Christian Europe for the next century and change, they would never be the same. Their power would decrease. Uh, the power, you know, of the Crusaders in general would just kind of fall away. The fall of the Templars was uh, slowly beginning already, and it would come to a dramatic end in 1312, which we'll talk about next week in part two, the fall of the Knights Templar. And, you know, and even more fun, we'll dig into various wackadoodle conspiracies that, that revolve around the Knights Templar. And we'll have, you know, fun with the idiots of the internet uh, this next episode, you know, about what they have to say with all these conspiracies. But just kind of like summary of today you know, it, they were just uh, revolutionary where, you know, they, they were born out of the First Crusade when, you know, the Western Europe decided they wanted to take the Holy Land. 
back from the Muslim because they didn't like how Christians were being treated there, and they just wanted it, I'm sure. It's important to their faith. And, you know, once they kind of start kicking ass there, they, they realize they need to establish some group of people to really kind of uh, protect it and to protect people getting there. Various groups are kind of popping up, but it was the Knights Templar that you know, became the the preeminent one, the one that would uh, really take that responsibility. And then they, you know, uh, Hugh of Payan goes on a big diplomatic tour, you know, a couple years later, and he gets a lot of important people on his side, and he gets a lot of money, gets a lot of wealth, and then they get all that power from the Pope. They're given license to kill. They're given autonomy. Uh, you know, and they get to have all of that as long as they continue to protect Christian interests. It's just dependent on that. And then through the network they assemble to protect the routes of pilgrims, they become incredibly wealthy. And, uh, and that's kind of where a lot of the, uh, the conspiracies, as you'll see this next week, kind of come out of, you know, that's the mystique around them is all this money they had hidden in all these, you know, they did hide it. They did ha- for sure hide money to keep, you know, ransackers from taking it in various battles and, and all the fortifications. And, you know, uh, all the holy relics that are, you know, supposedly floating around. I say supposed because these people believe these relics were, you know, from the crucifix or from, you know, Virgin Mary. I don't know that that's true, but they thought it was true. And uh, and so, you know, you get all these conspiracies around the, the supposed relics that came into their possession and the wealth. And, yeah, just, you know, uh, they became fascinating to people. Uh, okay, so for today, uh, let, let's further recap in a little more organized fashion what we've learned so far and uh, in, in part one with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Knights Templar, founded in 1119, started off with just a handful of soldiers, uh, such as first Master Templar, Hugh of Payan, who wanted to protect Christian pilgrims and expand the newly formed Crusader states by ridding the Middle East of Muslim rulers. Number two, within a decade of forming the Knights Templar, they were given a license to kill by the Pope. Within two decades, another Pope made them beholden to no one other than the Pope and made it a sin to stand up against him. These powers, plus not having to tithe, made the head of the Templars, the Master Templar, essentially more powerful in a lot of ways than a king. Number three, the Knights Templar, sworn to poverty, became one of the wealthiest organizations in medieval Europe, morphed in becoming one of Europe's premier bankers. Number four, the Knights of the Temple, would, uh, and that's also what they were known as, the Knights of the Temple, Knights Templar, would actually only defend the site that gave them their name in Jerusalem for less than 70 years. But even when they lost, they lost bravely, usually fighting to the death, and remained a symbol of Christian hope in the Holy Land for m- many more years to come. Number five, new info, let's talk about the charge of the Templars. Now, this is the military maneuver the Templars would become most famous for, beyond receiving, you know, overall just kind of better military training than most of their contemporaries. And, you know, possessing more discipline with all the rules, it was the devastating horseback charge of the Templars that brought them uh, renown throughout the Holy Land. Many then contemporary literary sources write about how the Knights Templar were masters of forming into a tight-packed squadron and charging into their enemies in wedged formations on horseback. And while this maneuver seems very simple in theory, it required an expert level of discipline, organizational skill, you know, uh, you know, being skilled on horseback to actually make it work on a battlefield against a formidable foe. It was an unusual way to fight, too, in a day when most secular Western European counterparts were prone to individualistic glory on the battlefield. Like, once it got into the battlefield, they just kind of, you know, spread out and swinging swords and, you know, lances and, and whatnot and just kind of mayhem. They were very organized in these battles, dedicated to teamwork. And so when enemies, you know, saw these, these, these uh, field armor and white robe with red cross wearing dudes galloping towards them in a tight formation, swords raised on horseback, you know, they got scared. They knew. They knew that the battlefield was about to get real bloody. 
Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, the Knights Templar, they've been partially sucked, half sucked. More sucking to come. Going to keep sucking these dudes. Suck them so hard. Uh, fascinating stuff, man. This is definitely one of those weeks where I found myself, I had to kind of like, you know, pull myself off of research. I'm like, oh, oh it's already getting too complicated. But there's so many things I want to learn about. Uh, big thanks to the Time Suck team, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, Reverend Dr. Josh Krell, uh, back feeling a little better at least, uh, Alex Dugan, the Bit Elixir team, Danger Brain, Eric Radiker, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. Uh, thanks to Donald Yantis for uh, sending in some of the uh, Templar dates to look into and for Kai Beamer sending in a list of conspiracies for me to look into for part two. And, uh, and part two is coming up this Friday. It's, uh, it's the bonus, you know. Uh, we'll look into the fall of the Knights Templar. Various conspiracies that still float around about them. Conspiracies like, uh, like Templars uh, being killed because they had sacred knowledge and proof of Christ's bloodline. And marriage to Mag- uh, Mary Magdalene. Uh, they, they reference that actually in my favorite graphic novel series of all time, Preacher by Garth Ennis. They talk about, yeah, a little bit about this. Anyway, the Knights Templar made it to America a hundred years before Columbus and hid treasure in places like Oak Island. That's a theory. Knights Templar uh, hid the Holy Grail, hid vast amounts of treasure and even the mummified head of Jesus. Uh, the Knights Templar are still around. They're, they're, still, they're, they're still around. They're working with Freemasons and Illuminati to establish a new world order. That's conspiracy. Uh, my favorite twist on that one is that the original medieval guys are still alive. Some of those original guys are still alive. They're immortal. They're like, they're like Highlanders. Thanks to the Holy Grail, uh, which gives them Im- immortal power, a power they covet. So much wackadoodle to explore in addition to, uh, wrapping up their historical tales. It's going to be fun. Uh, last thing real quick before updates. Uh, if any of you use, uh, love using one of the products we've advertised here on Time Suck, if you've hopped onto one of our promo codes, acquired something you enjoy for a nice price. Uh, please email us about your experience. The Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. Testimonials help us not only get new sponsors, but the right sponsors for the show. You know, if, if you're going to hear a commercial, I, I at least want you to hear it be for something you actually want to buy. So send in testimonials, if, if you could, about Lisa, Dollar Shave Club, any of our other sponsors. And, you know, let us know uh, some kind of wish list companies you'd like to get a good deal from. I know I just got one of my wish lists, you know. Uh, Lisa is a dream sponsor. I, I love, and also another wish list one for sure is uh, the Great Courses, you know, I've been talking about just recently. So we want to get more of that kind of stuff. So thank you again also for your continued support. And now let's check in with some of you directly with some Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Time Sucker uh, Mark Brakefield wrote in with an update that brought a huge uh, shit-eating grin to my face. Actually, I did laugh out loud. I read it on my phone. I'm <laughs> getting on a flight. And uh, it has to do with the Golden State Killer episode. I love it when you guys fall for my nonsense. You know that I do. And also Mark does. Because this is what he wrote. This is what he wrote. He said, uh, Dear Master Sucker, Lord of Nicknames. <laughs> uh, I've been listening to the Suck since nearly uh, day one. Absolutely love it. Consumes me every episode. It's so interesting. I love the misdirection. Oh, thank you. And the made-up lies you throw in each episode. I recently got my wife to listen to the Golden State Killer episode. And the part where you mentioned the East Area Rapist... <laughs> Having a conjoined twin and having the twin be an accessory <laughs> in the crimes and being considered just as guilty had my wife's mind blown. She completely fell for it and was trying to research it as you were talking about the episode. Finally asked, asked me if it was true and where <laughs> and where you got your information from. That's when I lost it. I couldn't stop laughing. Had me in tears. Man, keep doing what you're doing. Don't change your ways. I love to suck. Keep on sucking. 
Hail Nimrod and Bojangles, your faithful space lizard, Mark. Thank you, space lizard, for supporting the show. I fucking love it, Mark. I'm so glad. That makes me laugh again. I just love thinking about your wife being like, what in the fuck? Why would they Why would they have the, the conjoined twin? Be, how, would he, how would he sneak in with the twin? How would he keep the twin? like so many questions. Must have been going through her mind. I love that she's researching it. Like, I, what? I see nothing in the information about him. How is that not part of the story? Thank you for sharing that. Oh, man. Uh, Time sucker Chris Rollins had uh, kind of a, to further this uh, update about the Golden State Killer conjoined twin nonsense. He has a theory as to why I, I thought that up. He wrote, hey, King Sucker, just listening to Golden State Killer and got to the part where he said, D'Angelo had a Siamese twin. You are describing the story of the 1982 film Basket Case. I think you saw this as a child, and we just got to witness the Mandela effect in action. Anyways, thanks for sucking. Thank you, Chris. I haven't, I haven't seen that movie to my knowledge, but uh, uh, I'm, I hope I have time to watch it. I love ridiculous movies like that. Uh, important Stanford prison experiment update. A lot of you uh, guys sent this in. I'm going to read the email I got from uh, Jen Dwyer. Time sucker saying, hey, Dan, I'm a fan of, uh, of a page on Facebook called I Fucking Love Science, and it has some awesome articles. Anyway, I just read about one about the Stanford prison experiment. Apparently, it has recently come out that the guards were told how to act. And some prisoners acted as well. There are recordings that were discovered that basically call the entire experiment into question. Uh, on another note, my husband is a Joffrey, a, a Jeffrey, and I died laughing on a recent update correcting your pronunciation of that name. I texted him, hey, Joffrey, and he responded, damn mushmouth Cummins. <laughs> Have a fantastic day, Jen. Ah, oh, I love it. I love being the mush mouth that uh, got you some laughs there. No, I got a bunch of updates on that. Honestly, with all my uh, Templar stuff, I haven't um, thoroughly read any of the stuff about Stanford, but I, but I get the gist that, yeah, apparently they found recordings and uh, they kind of fudged it. How it which, I, I mean, I still think it's just such, an, it's so interesting that they just did that, that they actually made them. And, and the people, even if they were kind of pushed into directions, I mean, they did really antagonize each other. But, uh, yeah, huh, okay, so... Uh, Stanford prison experiment may have been a fucking bunch of nonsense. Well, that's why we have the updates. That was, that's why, you know, the stuff always happens. Uh, not always, but you know, in history, they'll have one version of a story that'll last for many years. Then you'll find out like, no, it was, it wasn't true. Yeah. Never fun, but it is what it is. Okay. So thanks for sending that in email from uh, tr uh time sucker trig, uh, trig Jegman saying, Hey Dan, I've been a fan of your standup for years, but I recently found out about time suck from Burt Kreishner's podcast. I was just listening to your Golden State Killer, and during the Idiots of the Internet segment, you found a virtue signaler who called him a jerk. Well, he might not be an idiot after all, because he might just be repeating a joke that the great Norm MacDonald would tell, where he would find a person who did massive atrocities like Hitler or Albert Fish and would sum up all they did in horrifying detail and then would just be like, man, what a jerk. Uh, I don't totally know if he did that on purpose, but I thought you might like to know that it could have been just an elaborate joke that it probably was hard to convey over the internet. Anyways, thanks for sucking and hail Nimrod. P.S. Would be awesome for you to do a suck on Albert Fish one day. One of the worst murderers and cannibals in American history. Yeah, he's no, he's been on the list for sure, uh, Albert Fish. And yeah, I guess that is true. It could have been, could have been uh, old, uh, like a joke. It, it is tough to convey though sometimes. So that is true. Some of these idi idiotic comments, you know, I, I don't know what their intent was. I can't get a hold of them. I just think like a face value. I'm like, well, that's pretty ridiculous. And just the com the, the comedian in me wants to assume that they uh, <laughs> didn't do it in a, an intelligent way. But sometimes I'm sure they did. Okay, Kenny Frederick sends in an update saying, uh, for the Ed Geller and Poe, saying, I just finished listening to the bonus episode. You nailed it with the poem. 
Seriously, I listened to it five times. Uh, love the podcast. On another note, I, I hear you refer to Bojangles as being a three-legged, one-eyed pit bull. Funny because my dog is very close to what you described. My dog has just a little bit of pit bull in him. He has three legs. One of his legs had to be removed after he got shot. Man, we never found out who shot him. Fuck, man. But had to get his left front leg removed after he came home one day and had a swollen up shoulder. He just laid on the porch. I didn't notice anything wrong until he started licking his shoulder. I looked and saw a good-sized hole in his shoulder. What a tough dog, man. Took him to the vet, found out that his shoulder was completely shattered. Had the bullet barely, uh, and the bullet had barely penetrated his chest cavity. So the only option was to remove the leg, shoulder, and all. He's six years old. Having one leg missing doesn't slow him down one one bit. Praise Bojangles. He's also had a huge, uh, also had a heck of a grudge against porcupines. So much so that he was in danger of losing his right eye. We live in the woods, so there are animals constantly wandering into our yard. Once or twice a year, a porcupine comes through, and we have to spend hours removing quills from his face. He's gotten a face full of uh, quills probably 15 times. Usually, <laughs> usually he doesn't get them in or around his eyes, but this last time he got one on the roof of his mouth, worked his way through his face, narrowly missed his eye. My God. So I guess he's not in com- uh, complete danger of losing his eye unless another porcupine comes to the yard. He's a tough fucker, I tell you. Definitely a relative of Bojangles. Keep on sucking. Sincerely, Kenny. Thank you for sharing that, man. What a badass dog you have. I love that you have a real-life Bojangles, basically. Last one is from Kayla Om, who says, Dear Dan, the illustrious lord and bard of Nimrod's nutsack. (laughs) I I just thought this was funny. You have been banned from the house. Apparently, my better half was not keen on learning about President Johnson's Johnson. Ah, one of the very first sucks. I was thrust in the time suck a couple months back by a friend, uh, a friend who applied uh, so much force to the pressure that I could possibly right now be a diamond. But I digress. <laughs> so I love it, man. I love you guys aggressively spreading the suck. I digress. After the incident with Johnson's Johnson, I can now only listen to Time Suck while outside or in the truck. <laughs> and the majority of the time, it's while shoveling my horse, uh, my horse's shit into mountainous piles away from the barn. I just wanted to say thank you for making shit shoveling educational and entertaining. I finally finished all the episodes. Now have no idea what I'm going to do with all my extra time. Thank you again. May Nimrod's soft, squishy sack keep you comfortable enough to release more suckage. Yes. Sincerely, Kayla. P.S. Sometimes I sneak you into the house and our cat makes this weird face whenever he hears your voice. I want to send you a picture due to its high level of amusement, but I wasn't sure where to send it. Uh, take care. You can just send the pictures right into Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. Uh, absolutely. Well, uh, that's all for the updates. Thank you, all of you who send them in every week. They're fantastic. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, that's all until Friday, time suckers. Have a great next couple of days. Uh, do your best not to get slashed, hacked, burned, decapitated, or flayed in some kind of uh, religious battle or any battle. And keep on sucking. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, 
finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck.